Well then, here we are now <laughs> with some words to share. This is a big one. I hope you've got yourself ready. I hope you've strapped yourself in because there's a lot to go through in this one. Today, we're going through the Ten Commandments. This is so rich. This is so deep. There's a lot in this. And we're not just going through the original. We'll have a bit of a look at that. But we're going to go through multiple forms of the Ten Commandments. So this is a skewer which we are putting through multiple paradigms. So we'll take our time with it. We're going to go through them one by one. And altogether, there are, <laughs> well, we've got seven Ten Commandments. So this is the, <laughs> this is the 70 Commandments. <laughs> but you'll see how we go with it. And you'll see why we're doing it this way. Because, well, we're comparing perspectives. We're comparing value spheres. We're comparing different ways of looking at the world, different ways of explaining the world. And we'll compare them. We'll go back and forth. We'll have a look at some of the, the pros and the cons, some of the things that might be improved or that we might agree with now or not agree with now. And hopefully, as we discuss these, as we go through these, you'll see both the limits and the strengths of all of them, of any of them, wherever they lie, however they fall, however they unfold, there is a limit, there is a, like a, there's, there's certain amount of things they don't cover. There's a certain amount of things that aren't quite encompassed by them and there are certain things that are revealed by them there are certain things that are accentuated by them depending on which paradigm we're in depending on which set of ten commandments we're in so be on the lookout for that that's what we're looking for and we're looking for really fundamentally the ability to burst through multiple paradigms Right, So this thing of multi-perspectival thinking or multi-perspectival value spheres or multi-perspectival ways of viewing the world is what you're trying to sense. It's what you're trying to get in touch with. So in each set of Ten Commandments, you'll get a feeling of what it's like to be in that. And as we go through a few of them, you'll start to see the commonalities of them all and be able to see that there's so there's something else there's something that sort of that steps back it's that it's that moment where you're looking at the movie set through the camera and you're watching the movie through the camera and you're we've always got your head buried in the camera and the moment where you go multi-perspectival is when you you pull your head back and you see that there's multiple cameras. That's really one of the things that we're looking for as we discuss these. And we'll take our time with them. I'm not going to be in too much of a rush because 
Well, there is a lot to them. Now, another thing to understand is that I have my paradigm, right? So I'm presenting these to you and my commentary is limited by my own personal perspective at the moment. This is my own, I, I have my, I'm imposing my own value sphere onto all of these. So get a sense of that with the comments that I make as we go through and and be open to your own comments. Of course, don't fully disagree with everything I have to say straight off. Some things you need to swallow and some things you need to chew on, some things you need to spit out. That's the way it always goes with everything that you hear ever in anyone's case. So keep that in mind and just just watch within yourself how these fit up against your own current paradigm, your own current value sphere. So some of these will be like, oh, that's a silly idea or that seems outdated or I don't quite understand that or I wouldn't do that now or I don't see the point of that. And others might be more resonant. Others might be more true. So that's that's what's going on between you and me. I've got my own interpretation, my own paradigm, which would be like the eighth paradigm or the, the seventh paradigm, which is weaved throughout it. And then you've got your own, which is your own reaction, which is how you listen. So really the best way to come at this is to be open-minded and to say, okay, well, what can I learn from different paradigms? What can I understand from different ways of the di- the different ways in which people have come up with these ten rules to contend with how life is? Now, there is a lot of there are sort of what we could say sub paradigms or or value spheres that thread through a few of them. Like we've got naturalism. So naturalism is something that comes up in multiple lists. So it's not exactly like we've taken 10 commandments from each paradigm and the paradigms are neatly compartmentalized. It's not like we're saying, okay, this is the religious people, this is the atheist people, and this is the naturalist people. And these are the mystical people. It's not like that at all. There's a there's a flowing, there's a back and forth through all of them. Because remember that each value sphere, every value sphere, is available all the time. Every value sphere is right there. It's right here, right now. It's exactly in the air around us. And it's only waiting to be enacted. Now, different times in history and different people in history have enacted different value spheres. And as we talk about them, well, well, then we are doing that enacting. We are bringing to life. We are bringing to our consciousness the different value spheres. But they're all available. And they're always available. And they will always be available. So it's just for us to explore them and to see how other people explored them, how other people enacted them. And also, of course, not just people, but times and groups of people. So, there's the naturalists. I mean, what else can we say? There's 
the, the, the big ones are the, the naturalists, the atheists, the traditionalists, and the mystic. So we've got the original Ten Commandments, which would be more or less the traditional view. That's the traditional religious view. Now, with this word religious, we have to be careful because there's a number of different definitions that come up, and there are a number of different ways in which the word religious is skewered through multiple paradigms. So whenever you hear the word religious, even in this conversation, just be a bit careful with where we're at. And it's probably probably best at this stage to say that that's the traditional view. Those are the traditional values. So the original Ten Commandments for today we'll call the traditional view. And then we have Bertrand Russell, Richard Dawkins, and Christopher Hitchens. And they'll be coming from the new atheist paradigm or the atheism sphere of values. And we'll go through all of those. And you'll see how there are differences within them and there are also commonalities. And you'll also see, as we discuss them, how they come out of the times that they're in. And then we've also got the Indian Ten Commandments. So this is the Native American view of the world. And that's very much a naturalist view of the world. That's a sort of Gaia, ethnocentric, world-centric, naturalistic, biosphere, harmony kind of perspective. And that's all about, well, how do you understand your place in the world and your relation to ecosystems and the natural world, the rivers and the sea and the mountains and the trees and the animals and the sustainability of that sphere. So that's very different to the new atheist paradigm. And we see a lot of crossover in that with Richard Dawkins, actually, because he was in many ways a naturalist. So we'll get to that. And then we also have Osho, everyone's favorite. <laughs> well, maybe not everyone's favorite, but one of my favorites. So Osho will be coming in for the mystic camp or the mystical camp. And that will reveal, by the time we get to it, quite a lot of how different paradigms can be. And you'll see that there are fundamental things that really drive the differences between paradigms. It's a whole, it's almost like a whole different world. There are certain things that are being contended with in the mystical world or the mystical view of the world that don't even come up on the radar in the new atheist paradigm or the naturalist paradigm or even the well, of, well definitely of course the <laughs> traditional paradigm that's that's sort of way off which sort of brings me to another point which is this idea of unfolding but we'll get to Osho and we'll go through his 10 commandments and then at the very end if i feel like it i've come up with my own 10 commandments and these are the things that i've just thought about and I've come up with in answer to the question, well, what would you do? 
if you were given the task of coming up with ten commandments, what would you say? What would you share? What rules or advice or encouragings would you give to people and hold yourself to? So, to backtrack a little bit onto this idea that things unfold, value spheres do unfold. Now, the value spheres are available, as I said, but another important thing to understand is that our history is unfolding. Our understanding, our a priori knowledge is unfolding. Everything follows on from what's come before. So there are outliers in the past who have had high-level visions of the world and high-level value spheres, but they are not the majority. The majority is the slow, meandering machine of the unfolding of the evolution of human knowledge. So, in a sense, I mean, we'll, we'll get to this as we look at the difference between the traditional and the new atheists. But we really needed the old paradigms in order to get to the new ones. So keep that in mind as well. And that, that will become apparent because we are, we are going more or less in order. So we'll do the original and then Bertrand Russell and then the new atheists, then Osho and then me. So that's sort of roughly speaking in order with how they unfold. So, where to next? What else do we need to say as preamble? I think that's all that's coming to mind for now. I might just remind you again of this term, the skewer. So, I've used this word many times before and just to reiterate what that means is that what we're doing here is skewering or threading one thing through multiple things. And you need to understand that it's only one thing. It's almost like, I mean, to come back again to the analogy of the tapestry... Right. If you have something that's weaved with multiple threads, what we're doing here is just taking one thread and going through its length from the very end all the way along through wherever it goes to the other end. So, in a sense, what we're doing is narrowing our explanation of reality, of life, of what's going on here and now and with all the things that are happening throughout existence in order to reveal more about it. So the Ten Commandments is a skewer. It's just one little thing that we can put through multiple things. And there are multiple skewers. There are multiple ways to go through Paradigms. There are multiple ways to look at openings to new ways of seeing the world. 
And it's just that today, well, this is the discussion for today. It's just, it just so happens that it turned out quite neatly that the Ten Commandments have turned up in this way. This form has turned up in multiple paradigms. It's funny, because, like, why, why is it ten? Like, why is it that they all have ten? And you could say, well, a lot of them are in response to certain things. They're in response to what's come before. They're in response to certain values, which connects them. And it's sort of funny how some of them will look like an opposition or a rejection, and yet still that is a kind of relating to. So that's a little bit about the skewer. And yeah, I mean, we've used that word before, and we'll use it again. And I hope it becomes, if it's not clear now, then it will become clear as we go through this, how narrowing something can actually reveal more by going, it's like, it's like we're going into the detail in order to reveal more about the bigger picture. That's one way of looking at it. It's like we're, we're, we're like, we're bringing ourselves down to specifics instead of making broad generalizations. And we'll actually be, as we go, osculating between the two. And it's really the play between those two that reveals things. So that's a little bit about the mechanics of how we make our way through this. Okay, so the original Abrahamic religious traditions have the Ten Commandments. So we've got Moses. He's trekking through the desert with his tribe, with his civilization on wheels. And he goes up to Mount Sinai and he has a conversation with God and he comes back with two stone tablets. This is the classic sort of cartoon version of the Ten Commandments. And he comes back with the two stone tablets and he says, these are the rules. These are the ten rules. God told them to me. Now, how it actually is in the Bible is that there's actually a lot of different dynamics and across all the Abrahamic religions, which is Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, there are different, like, we, we leave it to the, to the theologians. We leave it to, to the theological scholars to decide the different ins and the outs of, was it actually number one? What is the actual wording did he actually say it or did he quote it or was it divine intervention or was it meditation, these sorts of things? Was it prayer? You know, all of that sort of stuff, however they come about, it's not really important to us. What we're looking at is just the cartoon version of the Ten Commandments as they are generally accepted, more or less. But that's a little bit about the image that comes. And basically Moses came down and his whole, I mean, we get this, we can have this idea that the whole party was doing all these terrible things. 
They were breaking all the rules. It was like they they didn't know any sense of morality or any sense of right or wrong until Moses came up with the rules or until God imparted the rules to him. And there's obviously a lot of problems with that. I mean, you can poke holes in that. I mean, any any poking hole in a cartoon is still going to be on the level of a cartoon. So keep that in mind. But it's at least good to know that religious tradition. I mean, most people do know that story. I mean, Christianity is pretty far widespread, and that's one of the classic images of Moses and the Ten Commandments that come up. I mean, you, you get taught that in Sunday school. So if you've done any sort of if you've had any sort of Christian upbringing at all, you know the story of Moses. And if you don't, well, it's still worth knowing. It's still a very powerful image. And of course, all religions have their images to use. And I mean, that's a bit of a rabbit hole, like how we, how we use religion and its imagery and its psychology and its narrative is a deeper as a deeper discussion or a different discussion to what we're talking about here. So let's get into it. This is the Ten Commandments. Number one, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Now, in the time of Moses, for many centuries either side of his time, actually polytheism was the norm. Polytheism was accepted as standard practice, which means that there are many gods. Monotheism was actually a radical thing. This idea that there is no other god except God, that's quite radical. That's quite far out. And in fact, there is a history of monotheism being born and then failing. It didn't quite take. And you could actually even read this, that shalt have no other gods before me, as not even just a monotheistic commandment. Because you could say, well, he's just saying don't have any gods before me. So just put me first. You can have other gods, but this god is the main god. This god is the number one god. This is the most important God. So, I don't know if the amb- the ambiguousness of it was worded for that reason. <laughs> and the interplay between monotheism and polytheism is quite vast and quite complex. And it's quite a difficult trick to sort of weave out where one begins and where one ends. But... What we do need to know is that in this time, when Moses came down with this number one commandment, it was radical. It was quite a big step. Number two, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven images. Now, this is one that really can mess with the mind because we have this thing now of symbolism, right? We understand symbolism 
imagery, representation, and how we know things like, well, language and metaphors and all the rest of it, for us, that's clearly differentiated. That's clearly understood in so many ways. But in the time, well, they didn't have that understanding. They didn't have that way of saying that, okay, so a word only represents the thing that it represents. A word is only a symbol. A word is only a sound that you make with your mouth. And the actual thing itself, well, that's the real thing. That's the actual thing. That is the thing that it is. Now, of course, I'm taking this as a much more general thing. And in its time, this commandment, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven images, was really even more, it it was really pitched at the image of God and of heaven and of the divine. So, in short, don't make any pictures of God. Don't depict God. Don't depict the divine. Don't have symbols of the divine. And there's a lot of wisdom in that. There's a lot of logic in that. Because the logic is that you can get caught up in symbols. You can get caught up in meanings without actually going at the real thing, without actually remembering that it's just a symbol. It's just a representation. Now, of course, you look at the Abrahamic religions (laughs) and, wow, it's full of symbolism, right? It's full of representations. It's full of graven images, Right? When you look at it from how we're explaining it here today, like something as simple as having Jesus on the cross, like a lot of Catholic churches actually have a model of Jesus on the cross in their church. And that's not even going as far as like looking at, you know, stained glass windows, which are depictions of of Jesus. And well, we could say that. Maybe at this point, the theologian would step in and say, actually, Doster, you're confusing the New Testament with the Old Testament, and you need to really have that as a clear distinction and make sure that you are re-shifting your Ten Commandments to fit in with, well, how things are in the New Testament and the, the Gospels. But really, to zoom back out again, don't fall for the representation of something. That's a pretty good commandment. I mean, that still holds true, whether it's God or a depiction of something else. That still holds true. So, it's funny that we can actually take an old commandment and have it still be of value, even though... It really wasn't intended that way. And of course, the Muslims have something similar to this, which is that you just don't, you don't do any... I mean, they're, they're a lot more hardcore with this, right? I mean, it's the same rule. Don't, don't make pictures of God. I mean, do you remember that whole thing about the cartoonist who did a depiction of 
the Prophet Muhammad, and there was this huge outrage. There was this huge backlash. There was this massive thing in its time. And that, well, that just says that, you know, these, these values are still there. These commandments are still there. People still live by these. People still hold these very much as real. So, number three, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Now, on the surface, it is like, well, don't say God damn. Don't say Jesus Christ like that, like, like holy shit, you know, these sorts of swear words. And it's sort of funny that we've ended up using that name as a swear word. And I think probably, <laughs> probably because of this rule, it's like maybe people wouldn't even think to do this if it wasn't for this rule. Like, why would you, why would you even think to use someone's name as a swear word <laughs> unless someone, it, it's almost like that story of the guy who, who, put up a sign on his wall, don't piss here, because he wanted, you know, people not to be using his his sort of retaining wall as a public place to relieve yourself. But of course, once he put the sign up, everyone started pissing there because they realized, oh, this is actually a pretty good place to piss. It's almost like, you know, <laughs> it's like, hey, oh, I didn't even think. It, there's another example of this, which is, in Australia, we have these laws where you're not supposed to use your mobile phone while you're driving. And they have these signs every now and then on the side of the road, particularly on long drives or highway drives, where they say, you know, uh, it's against the law to to use your phone. You know, and they've got this sign which is like the big red cross through it, don't use your phone. And it's sort of like you're driving and then and then you think, well, this this happens to me. I don't know if anyone else has it, of course, but you're driving and you think, oh, I need to check my phone when I see that sign. <laughs> so it's like the rule backfires on itself when if you just hadn't have said anything, it wouldn't have been a problem. So don't say goddamn. Don't say holy shit. Don't say Jesus fucking Christ. That's number three. Now, there is a there is another way to take this, which is sort of something to be said about the ambiguous nature of thou shalt not take the Lord's vain, name in vain, which is that when you, when you take someone's name, that act, you can say that that's a calling, that's a reaching out, that's a, not an acknowledging, but a, like, like for, for, it, it covers every, Every way in which you use someone's name. So every circumstance in which you use someone's name. That's the taking of the name. If we say that that's the taking of the name, then to be told that you won't take it in vain means that, well, you can say that God's always there for you. Or at least on the surface you could say that. You could say that, does that mean that when I call out to God, God will always be there? It won't be in vain. Well, yes, you could say that that's probably what it means. That could be what it means. It's not exactly clear that that's what it, that means, but that is one thing that it could mean. 
Now, if we look at this in another way and we say that the way you use God's name is the way that he will reveal himself to you or not not reveal but that's that's not the right that's not the right language that's not the right, right way to say this it's like the way you use the name is the way the relationship will be it's almost like if you say someone isn't real then they're not real if you say someone is real then they are real if you say someone will help has helped you, well, then they've helped you. If you ask God a silly question, you ask God a meaningful question, you call to God for this reason or that reason or in this circumstance or that circumstance, then that that thing sort of defines the the calling defines his role, his function within that. So it's really like, it's almost like putting the the meaning of the name back onto you. And to say, well, thou shalt not take the Lord's name in vain, means to say that, well, your relation is up to you. And of course, this is my own, this is my own sort of weavings from it. You don't really, you don't really get this. You don't really get this just from taking this commandment on face value. Number four, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Well, I guess, yeah, we need a day off every now and then. We do need to remember what is holy, whatever that be for you. And I sort of have this funny cartoon coming to mind, which is, or comic coming to mind, which is where you've got two people and they're in hell and they're being tortured, you know, the devil's there and there's demons all around and they're sort of being speared into the guts with these spikes and things and they're sort of standing next to each other, lying next to each other in their agony and one turns to the other and says, oh, how did you end up in here? I was a serial killer. And the other says, oh, I didn't. Uh, I once worked on a Sunday. <laughs> so that's a funny image that comes back to me now when I remember this. Number four, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Number five, honor thy father and thy mother. This is where we really get into sort of the traditional values. And you could say, well, what does it mean to honor someone? Does it mean to do what they say? Does it mean to appease them? Does it mean to do everything you can to make them proud? And what if it is that your mother and father don't have higher values? What if they don't have a clear sense of morality? What if they don't have a sense of right and wrong that can be of beneficial use to you or of use towards your well-being and your understanding of the world? So you could say that, well, 
Why should you? You could rebel. You could say, well, there are problems with that. It's very easy to see that there are problems with that. But if we look at honour in another way, we can say, well, you can honour someone while disagreeing with them. You can honour someone while looking out for yourself. You can honour someone while seeing their shortcomings and seeing their problems and seeing how it is that they might not be furthering your own wellness through their own ignorance, because of their own ignorance, because of their own unconsciousness. So, I think generally though, like on the surface of it, it is good to just, you know, be kind to mum and dad. Understand that your mum and dad, well, when you really look at it, you do owe a lot to them, right? They did bring you into the world. They did raise you. You are here largely because of them. So you do owe a lot to them. So honour thy father and thy mother. Number six, thy shalt not murder. That's a pretty old rule that's been around for quite a while. And of course, the idea of murder as opposed to killing someone has changed through different ages and different cultures. In some cultures, murder was distinguished from killing someone depending on the dynamics, pretending on the, contending on like, well, what are the circumstances? What are the ins and outs? And is, is it actually okay? Now, in some cultures, it's actually okay to kill someone. And that is not considered murder under certain circumstances. So... That's that's a big one. I mean, there's a huge history there. You could go into a whole history throughout the whole world of what that means and what it's like. And I mean, we still have... I mean, you could state that today we still have the military, right? Western countries are still sending military operations into the Middle East and what have you. And in that process, they are killing people. You've got war... De- casualties of war, Right? So where, where do you draw the line there between murder and killing someone? So it's still not a, I mean, in cer- certain situations, still not a very clear-cut thing. But I think, I think probably I would say that, you know, it's best not to kill someone. Even in that situation of war. I mean, I'm very much against war. And we've talked about that in the past. But I think generally, most people would agree, thou shalt not murder. Number seven. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Now, by basically all the measures of the theologians, 
adultery is sex outside of marriage. So basically, the value is don't have sex outside of marriage. And this is, well, this is the traditionalist paradigm. This is a classic staple of the traditionalist paradigm. And to understand where it comes from is to know why it makes sense. Because, well, what we had before tradition was barbarism. It was impulsive behavior. It was the sort of violence, in a sense. There's the emotional violence and the really just gnashing of the red meme, the passion, the 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 hurt, the like there's a, there's a lot of I mean I can only talk about that from where I'm sitting right now and it's a very it's a very hurtful and sort of it, it's it's an anguish of a world to be in, right? The the what what can we call it? The I mean, I want to call it the red meme because that's what it's called in the spiral dynamics model, but it's really the passion meme or the impulsive meme. So when it comes to impulse, sex is one of the most powerful impulses and the most primal impulses we have, right? Now, it's not as primal as thirst and hunger. So there are things deeper than sex, but... It's one of the most powerful. It's the thing that really drives passion in so many ways. And so this traditionalist paradigm is like, well, how do we organize ourselves? How do we actually contend with this problem? How do we work with this when we've got all these people and all these things happening? So they make the rule, which is that we institutionalize sex. We also ritualize sex. Now, this carries through to today. And I mean, there's a lot of reasons why this still holds. Because you can say that sex is sacred. You can say that sex outside of marriage is a kind of degenerating of the act. It's a kind of... And I mean, this is what the sort of conservative people today would say, which is that sex is something that shouldn't be just sort of whimsical or flimsy or done on a whim. It's something that should be exalted. And and I can see a lot in that. I can actually see value in that. I can see that there's a point to that. And you could say even more broadly that there are things in human nature which can be used wrongly. They can be done in a way that isn't optimal. And you could say, well, then the rules are made to optimize that, right? That's the only reason you make a rule, is to optimize what we've got, to stop the bad stuff happening and to make more of the good stuff happening, right? That's what rules are, fundamentally. And when it comes to sex, well, that's a good example of something that is in human nature, which is something that can be utilized for, well, very much good, 
or also very much bad. I mean, there is a lot of there is a lot at stake with sex. There is a lot in it. I mean, there can be, I mean, there can be grossly terrible experiences surrounding sex. Some of the worst, if not the worst. And yet also, there can be some of the best experiences, if not the best. So, sex is one of those things that it's really at the core of... It's one of those things that is at the core of the differences between the traditionals, the traditionalists and the progressives now, right? So now we have the the free sex movement. Or I mean, it's it's long gone now. I mean, it's not long gone. It's long had its birth and coming to and coming into its own place in the world. And those are two things. There, there, there are two. Those are two ways of understanding the difference between the progressives or the liberals and the traditionalists. And I mean, I don't mean to get into sort of how those two value spheres sit more recently. I just mean to keep it broad and to say that well, back in the day, when Moses was on his hill. He was aware enough to contend with sex and intimate relationships. And of course, there's so much in this. I mean, adultery can be drawn in a line in so many different ways, in so many different places. And there's even differences between the Catholic side and the Protestant side in Christianity. So... That's probably too much for us to really go into fully. So we can just plant a flag there to say that, you know, well, actually, you know, sex could be a skewer. Sex can be a skewer that we put through multiple paradigms. We could go through a whole different bunch of perspectives and see, well, how do they deal with sex and what did they say was good about it or wrong about it? How did they say they sh- that it should be done or shouldn't be done? What were the rituals? What were the cultural customs in the times and the places and so on? And we could do a whole thing on that. So let's just keep that as a as a conversation that or or a rabbit hole that we could go down at a different time. Number eight, thou shalt not steal. Now people do steal, still steal. And I think if the world was done away with stealing tomorrow, then sure, we would have less problems, but we'd still have a lot of problems, right? We'd still have a lot of things to work with. And it's a pretty, it's a pretty moralistic kind of rule, which is, it's, it's sort of like a playground rule, right? This is the sort of thing you, you learn in kindergarten or grade one. Thou shalt not steal. Don't steal things from others. And, well, it's a pretty good rule, right? You trust, you do have to trust that, to a certain extent, people aren't going to steal. 
And there's this funny thing that comes up to mind now about locks, which is, I can't remember where I heard someone talking about this, but they said that when you put a lock on a door, it's just sort of a a thing that you do just out of like common, how do I say it? I've forgotten how they said it, but it's like when you put a lock on a door, it's just a discouragement. It's just a sort of common courtesy or a common boundary because a lock on a door really on a house isn't going to stop someone. If someone really does want to break in, they can break in. They can just smash the window and or smash down the door and it's not very hard. But if you leave it unlocked and fully open, well, then that's going to be a little bit tempting for someone who wouldn't normally break in but might actually take advantage of a situation. So that's why we lock our houses. It's just a sort of common boundary. But, I mean, I'm trying to imagine a a society where no one steals. I mean, there's always going to be until we have a society where everyone can have what they need and what they want and they're not in a state of desperation, then we're not going to be away with theft. I mean, that's really what it comes down to, right? If you have everything you need, why would you steal? And of course, how we organize a a global community a global species, a global civilization to allow that for everyone. Well, that's that's the slog of humanity, isn't it? Where are we up to? Thou shalt not steal. Okay, number nine, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. So don't lie about your neighbor. Don't say that you saw them doing something when you didn't. Don't give testament. You know, I get the image of someone being in court saying, I saw so-and-so doing this bad thing, and then they get convicted, right? That's the image that comes to mind. But really, it can just be said simply, like, don't lie about your neighbor. Don't lie about anyone. And of course, it becomes a bit a bit tricky, right? When you get into the actual way that it works, because we have our opinions about someone, we have our own ideas of what it meant, right? To just say, speak truthfully about other people is is overly simplistic. Speak truthfully about how someone actually is doesn't it doesn't cut it. There's so much more to it because there's the meaning and then there's feelings and then there's emotions and there's self-confirmation bias and there's all sorts of hidden motives and there's saving face and there's all sorts of things like standing in, you know, it's just huge. There's just so much going on in the complexity of what is going on when you say something about someone else. So that would be a kind of limited, it, it, it's almost like it's a limited commandment, but it's also 
necessary, right? You have to say it. It has to be it, it has to be given, like don't lie, right? That's a good it, it, that's sort of like a good rule, but also a completely hollow rule. Like don't lie. Okay, so tell the truth. Okay, so what is truth? How do I find the truth? How do I know that I'm telling the truth? And so on. And for me, I would say that, well, there are answers to those questions. There are ways to learn truth. And you can say, well, maybe I'm just taking it too much as a simplistic thing and it has it and and the things that are meant to be implied are meant to be implied and were intentionally there in the background when these people came up with these commandments but either way we have to <laughs> we have to see the limits and the strengths of these commandments so now we come to number 10 and this is thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house or this is sometimes simply put as thou shalt not covet and it actually goes on to say thy neighbor's house thy neighbor's wife thy neighbor's slaves thy neighbor's animals and so on so do not do not be jealous is what this means in essence and this sort of is different to the others because, well, it gets at a little bit of the own, your own personal feeling around what will lead to actions, right? Thou shalt not steal and thou not shalt not murder and thou shalt not commit adultery. They're actions. They're things that you, you don't do. They're things that... If you were filming that person, you would be able to see them doing it, right? Whereas with don't be jealous, that's an interior thing, which actually can lead to, well, it can have behavioral manifestations. It can play itself out in the world in a way that can be seen. But it's directed at the inner world. It's directed at the emotional composition of the individual and well it's a tricky one isn't it i mean how do you not be jealous how do you not be envious because we all have things that we want right we have desire within us there's no denying that about the human condition and we live in societies we live in situations where some have more than others and we're always always going to have moments where that difference is being revealed to us it's being shown to us there are points of contact where the class differences or the situational life condition differences are put onto us so, in a sense, it's quite profound to say that you shouldn't be jealous. You should be aware of this. You should be able to contend with these differences. 
And yet in another sense, it's quite hard. It's quite like, well, I'm just one person, you know. I'm just a mere mortal. And you're asking me to do this near impossible thing. I mean, probably, I mean, how would I, if, if, if I actually stood up to this, like, how would I actually do this? I mean, I don't really take a day off. So I don't have the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And, uh, you know, mother and father, well, I do what I can. I've never killed anyone. Uh, As for adultery, (laughs) well, I think we know the answer to that. But the thing about the original, the thing about these traditional commandments is that it's like, don't do this. Don't do that. Stop this. Stop that. No, no, no. It's, an, it's, an, it's a feeling of restriction. It's a feeling of restraint. And that's something to understand by where they're coming from, where the things were that they were doing when these commandments came to them. So that's the original. That's Christianity in a nutshell. Well, it's not Christianity in a nutshell. It's just the Christian Ten Commandments in a nutshell. So let's move on now to Beetroot, Russell, old mate. So Beetroot Russell is a linguist, a philosopher, a rationalist, and an atheist. And he spoke out quite a lot against religion in his time. So these are dated at 1951, so 2,000 years, more than 2,000 years after the original Ten Commandments. So let's go through them. Let's see what old old mate Beetroot has to say. Number one, do not feel absolutely certain of anything. Okay, well, this is immediately different because he's talking about feelings, right? And I don't know if... I don't get the sense that Russell did know very much about what it means to live without certainty. And I mean, there's also a scale implied, right? He said, he said, do not feel absolutely certain of anything. So does that, does that mean I can be like 99% sure of something? Like I can be, I can be not, not absolutely certain, but I can be like a hair away from being absolutely certain, and then that's okay. Now, that's very different to saying be completely uncertain of everything or always live in a state of unknowing, right? That's very different. If we're putting the scale in like that, then we can say that There's a definite place where Russell falls on that scale. Number two, 
Do not think it worthwhile to proceed by concealing evidence, as the evidence is sure to come to light. Now, of course, this is quite hard to really say anything about because it depends on context, right? You can say, well, does evidence come to light in the court of law? That's what it, that's what it sounds like, this word evidence and proceeding to conceal evidence. These sorts of terms, you know, you think it's sort of very lawful. It's very formal sort of language. But of course we know that in many cases the evidence doesn't come to light. And you could say, well, he's not commenting on that. He's just saying, don't think that it's worthwhile to proceed by concealing evidence. So whatever evidence is there, it might be that there is a lack of evidence, which is different to saying, well, there's evidence, but we're concealing it. So... We can, I mean, I, I could agree with this, right? I would say that, sure, if the evidence is there, it is going to come to light. And, and I don't know. I mean, now what, what we're coming up against, and we'll come up against this in the rest of Russell's commandments as well, is that certain words function in certain ways. And really, a lot depends on the definition of the word and how that word is functioning for the meaning to be deduced from the commandment. So, what exactly does he mean by evidence would be what I would ask to that. Number three, never try to discourage thinking for you are sure to succeed. Now, this reveals that Russell didn't have much of an understanding of mysticism. He didn't know, he wasn't aware of no mind spheres. He wasn't aware that beyond the mind, beyond thinking, there is a whole range of modes of existing. There's a whole sort of like, like it, it's it's vast. There's a huge, like a huge amount of different colors and flavors and states and dynamics and navigations and maps that are all beyond thinking. So he's very much thinking centered. He's very much a mind centered person or paradigm that he's coming from. So. There's a lot wrong with this. You could say never try. I mean, he at least sees that you can stop thinking, right? It's implied in this. Never never try to discourage thinking for you are sure to succeed. So from from the mystical point of view, you would say that, well, he knows that you'll stop thinking. But then, then another way that this could be taken is that he means thinking not as in thinking how it sits within the phenomenon of being a human within reality and that 
thinking is only a small portion of what's going on within that phenomenon, but you could say that, well, it's thinking. He means thinking as in thinking about things and being clear in your thought and actually thinking things through properly, right? It's like you just want to be clear with your thoughts. You want to be rational. You want to be able to see see there's really not enough there's really not enough words for it there's really not enough ways to say the different ways of thinking it's like that that in in this law in this commandment never try to discourage thinking for you are sure to succeed there's there's really two meanings that could be taken from this and one is thinking as it sits within the phenomenon of reality as a smaller component of that reality and thinking as processes, thinking as the means by which you sort out thoughts, thinking as the means by which you become clear in how you think. So... That's that's quite a lot for number three. <laughs> number four, when you meet with opposition, even if it should be from your husband or your children, in, endeavor to overcome it by argument and not authority. Okay, so here we hit the roadblock, which is what does he mean by argument? And I believe what he means by argument is a little bit by what he means by thinking, which is process, discussion, right? Now, some of the time we think of, I mean, I mean, now when I think of argument, I think of, you know, a heated discussion, which is not healthy. You don't want to have an argument. You don't want to have these emotional sort of confrontations between people. There's no real use that comes from that. But I believe what he means here by argument is process, discussion, deducing truth from conversation by open conversation and flowing conversation. And then, of course, we can say, well, what does he mean by authority? Like, what does he mean by saying, I am right because of who I am. I guess that is basically what he means, right? Asserting something because of some other reason other than the agreed reason. And it's like, well, how do we come up with truth? How do we come up with, between us, the understanding of what it means to think clearly or to be clear in our thoughts or our understandings, the understanding of our understandings. I hope that's not too meta. And this comes up again in number five. So number five is, or the problem of this word authority comes up in number five. So this is number five. Have no respect for the authority of others, for there are always 
contrary authorities to be found. So, it's not clear now what he means by this. Because you could say authority is someone's belief system. Someone's authority is their belief system. Someone's authority is their asserting of what they think. And I don't think that he means authority in terms of like the establishment or the ranking or the institutional kind of authority. I don't think that's what he's getting at at all. I mean, it could mean that. But it wouldn't make sense for him to be commenting on that. I believe what he's, what he's trying to really get at is the mode by which values, beliefs, and truth unfurl between people and how they grow and how they come out. And this comes up again in number six. So he says, number six, do not use power to suppress opinions you think pernicious. For if you do, the opinions will suppress you. And number seven comes up again with this word opinion. Do not fear to be eccentric in opinion, for every opinion now accepted was once eccentric. So you can say, well, what does he mean by opinions? I mean, these, these words authority and opinion and thinking, it's really quite easy to confuse what he means by these. And yet also, I mean, I'm getting the sense that he's really, he's really trying to get something that would He's, he's trying to put his finger on something that would allow for something to come through, which is of a higher truth, which is of a better truth. And yet it's not, he, he's, not in, he's not quite there. He's not quite getting at it. And it continues on to number eight. I mean, this whole feeling continues on to number eight, which is, Find more pleasure in intelligent dissent than in passive agreement. For if you, sh if you value intelligence as you should, the former implies a deeper agreement than the latter. So he wants to know truth. He wants to... He really is yearning for... Something really, uh, there's, see, see, there's no way to really say it without going into sort of mystical terminology, right? I mean, what is he after? He's using, he's using his paradigm as best as he can to get to something else, to open up to something else. So he can sense that there's something beyond 
just his own beliefs, his own understandings. He can see that. He's not full of himself. He's not closed-minded. But he keeps coming up against the limits of his rationality. He keeps coming up against the problems of, well, what exactly does he mean by that? And where do you draw the line? And I mean, you could say, well, what's the use of an opinion? Like, why is there so much on the opinions of others and yourself? And he's starting to sense it with this number eight, which is essentially what he's saying is that it's it's better to it's better to have a disagreement and to break through into a kind of I wouldn't say argument, but but there's something in that which is much more juicy than passive agreement. And there's a lot of truth in that. I think that he's yeah, I mean I it's frustrating, you know, like I've read a couple of his books and I and I end up I've always ended up feeling quite frustrated because he gets close to the edge. He sees it's it's almost like he's seeing the edge that he needs to go over, which is into mysticism and beyond rationality, but he can't make that step. And this is this is better put in number 9. So he says it he says basically he says number 8 again in number 9 more clearly. So number 8 is find more pleasure in intelligent dissent than in passive agreement and number 9 is be scrupulously truthful even if the truth is inconvenient for it is more inconvenient when you try to conceal it. So that's a better way of putting it. He could have in a sense, just scrapped number eight and just had number nine. And he could have just said, well, the truth is uncomfortable, but an untruth is more uncomfortable. That's another way of putting it. That's a simple way of looking at this. And, man, I mean, Beetroot Russell. I mean, I, I get this feeling every time I go into his work, every time I go into his writing, which is that he's just, he, he's just not quite there. And it's just, it's blaringly obvious to me the limits of his rationality. And I mean, I'm I'm going off that by by more than just what's written here in his Ten Commandments. I mean, I'm also going off the feelings of what I've read in his books. You know, he's got these books, which is like like one is an inquiry into meaning and why I'm not a Christian and a history of Western philosophy. And, you know, these are sort of classic modern atheist philosophy books by by Russell and yeah I mean I bring that I bring that feeling with me to that and I mean I I'm I'm reminded of that feeling that he has I'm reminded of the flavor of his perspective by reading his 10 commandments so number 10 the last commandment that he has is 
Do not feel envious of the happiness of those who live in a fool's paradise, for only a fool will think that is happiness. Well, it seems quite funny to have something like that as the last commandment after so much talk about how beliefs unfold and opinions and truth and thinking, which is all throughout so many of the previous commandments of his. So he sort of begins with feeling and ends with feeling. And there's this huge chunk of <laughs> there's this huge chunk of thinking in between, <laughs> which probably probably sums up Beetroot Russell quite well. But do not feel envious of the happiness of others. And you notice that they're both not feelings. So do not feel absolutely certain of anything, and is number one. And do not feel envious of the happiness of others. So he's telling you not to have a feeling. He's restricting a feeling. So that's quite interesting. Let's just plant that as something to take note of as we continue on through these. So obviously I can't agree with be true. I can't I can't really I mean it's so limited and it's so yeah, I mean, it's just like we just have to move on. We just have to we just have to grow out of these these old ideas that are so small. And I mean, we have, so we move on. So, next list, next set, <laughs> what are we calling them? Next paradigm, we have Richard Dawkins. Richard Dawkins, oh Richard, what are we going to do with you? What can we do with Richard Dawkins, my goodness? You know who he is, you know what he's like. You know, his whole stick, his whole spiel. Let's have a taste of the flavor of Richard Dawkins. So these are the Ten Commandments that he's come up with. Number one, do not do to others what you would not want them to do to you. Well, you can't say treat others how you want to be treated, right? Because everyone just likes to be treated like a king or a queen, right? Maybe that would be too much, too much demanding. I mean, I mean, now that I think of it, it's, I mean, like, well, why not? I mean, what does it take so much? I mean, short of feed me grapes and bring me gifts why wouldn't you just treat people like a king or a queen that they are? And I mean, this is the this is the sort of new twist on the 
golden rule. And there's there's problems with this. I mean, this is known as the golden rule, which is treat others how you want to be treated. And and the 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 little variations between you know treating or not treating or how you want to be treated or how you don't want to be treated. They they really are trying to get at the same thing anyway. So with those tiny increments aside, the problem with the golden rule is that it assumes how you want to be treated is how others want to be treated. And I believe Dawkins and the other new atheists actually updated this. They actually pointed this out themselves. And the better way to say it would be to say, treat other people how they want to be treated. Now, of course, there's even problems in that because people might not be aware of how they want to be treated. And you could even say that, well, people are telling you how they want to be treated by the way that they talk and how they behave and how they come across. And you could say that, well, people get what they deserve. You know, if you're mean to someone, it's, well, it's because you're an asshole. I was, I, was, I was mean to that person because they were mean and they got what they deserved. So it's really funny where responsibility lies. And generally speaking, I mean, on the surface value, this is a good law. It's a good rule to have. Don't do to others what you wouldn't want to do. Like, like think about it if it was in reverse, like, would you want someone to do that to you? And there is wisdom in that. There is, just on the surface value, something to be learnt from that. Number two, in all things, strive to do no harm. This is so simplistic and yet so deep at the same time. Because you can say, well, what is harm? What is damage? Damage to someone's body? Damage to someone's self-image? What about damage to someone's belief system? What about damage to someone's psychology? Damage to someone's perspective? Dawkins has spoken out so much against people's perspectives with his militant atheism and done so much harm to certain belief systems. Well... You can say, well, where do you draw the line? What exactly do you mean by harm? And then you've got the bigger question as well of what about harm to the ecosystem, to the biosphere, to the natural world? Well, I assume that he would include that. Number three, treat your fellow human beings, your fellow living things and the world in general with love honesty, faithfulness, and respect. Okay, now we're talking. Now we're getting into it. And it's sort of funny that he uses this word faithfulness because Dawkins has spoken so much against the faith of religion, against faith as a way of maintaining a traditional belief structure, an ideology or a system. And I'd, I'd want to be, I mean, I'm quite curious. I mean, what does he mean by faithfulness? I mean, to love someone 
We have an idea of that, right? Everyone has some sort of experience of love to varying depths and degrees. It's still love we have some idea of, but honesty, well, tell the truth. Be authentic, right? And respect. Everyone's got some sort of sense of respect. But faithfulness, faithfulness is a bit more, it's like, well, what exactly does it mean? What does faith actually mean? It's quite a funny word. It really, it really does stick out in this one. Treat your, fellow, treat your fellow human beings, your fellow living things, and the world in general with love, honesty, faithfulness, and respect. It seems quite, yeah, it seems like he's trying to get at something that is not normally within his realm of understanding or his awareness. Number four, do not overlook evil or shrink from administering justice, but always be ready to forgive wrongdoing freely admitted and honestly regretted. Now, it's a commandment like this that actually puts Dawkins very close to the camp of the religious fundamentalists. It's this sort of commandment that actually brings him very back, much back to traditional values, old values, religious values even. Because it's so, it's so soaked in morality. It's so soaked in judgment. And the question is, do you really want to be the one to cast judgment? Do you really want to be the one to say that you can decide what is just? And do you really want to be the one to say that you can forgive a wrongdoing freely admitted? And I mean, exactly where do you draw the line? Like if you kill someone and then you say, oh, you know, sorry, I honestly regret it. And say they seriously do. Well, is that enough? I mean, are we going to decide that that's enough to let someone off? Are we going to organize ourselves? Are we just going to empower individuals to administer their own justice? Now, we've tried that before, haven't we? That's called anarchism. And I think the sentiment, I mean, the sentiment is in the right place. Do not overlook evil or shrink from in, uh, administering justice. Like, hold people accountable for the wrongdoings that they do is, well, I mean, I mean, this is why morality is so sticky, right? This is why it's such a, a game of back and forth and a game of, well, really just risk. It's a risk that you are getting it right or you're getting it wrong and playing out actions which have consequences based on wrong foundings, right? So I, this one doesn't really sit very nice with me. I mean, it's so much, it's so much like in the original Ten Commandments, we've got this big man in the cloud that is giving us these rules. And then here with Dawkins, it's like, 
No, you have to play that role. You have to be that person. And that doesn't make the burden any more easier. It doesn't make it any more right. It doesn't make the actual course of actions that may unfold from that law any more likely to be happening in a way that is for the greater good. That's really how I see it. It's like we can have God administer justice or we can say you administer justice. And to that I would say, well, don't be so quick. Like even if God is an imaginary man in the cloud that's just made up, well, don't be too quick to say that he's any much worse or better than you at administering justice. Like, do you really want to have that job? Do you really want to be that person? And I'd be interested to see what Dawkins says about this in, like, like, what would he say in the case of the law? Like, would you keep law and criminal justice as separate? I mean, are we just talking about, like, personal relationships here? Or are we talking about society at large? So that's number four. Now we come to number five, and this is where Dawkins really opens things up. Number five, live with a sense of joy and wonder. Wow, finally. There's been so many laws, so many rules. Don't do this, don't do that, restrictions. So much has been poised at the dark side of our inner nature. And now we finally get to someone who has a sense of joy and wonder. And I believe, from reading Dawkins' books, that he does have a strong sense of joy and wonder at nature. I believe his way of expressing that is through sciences, through the hard sciences. And he does get that. I think he does get that. So... This one resonates quite well with me. I really like this one. Live with a sense of joy and wonder. Of course, with any anything that is dictating a state of the inner world, it's it's quite tricky, right? Because you can say, well, how do I how do I feel something? How do I force a feeling on myself? Can you really do that? Like what are the techniques? What are the methods? How do we go about doing that? And should we say Like, should I always be like this? Should I always be in a constant state of joy and wonder? Or should I have the variety of human experiences? And some of the time, at least part of the time, I should have joy and wonder. So it's very easy. I mean, with all of these, I mean, I don't mean to pick apart the limits of all of them. But it's just a few things to think about. So number six, let's move on. Always seek to be learning something new. Well, that's just good general life advice, isn't it? Always be learning something new. Number seven, test all things. Always check your ideas against the facts and be ready to discard even a cherished belief if it does not conform to them. Well, this is a similar problem that Russell had, right? Because you can say, well, what does it mean to test something? What does it mean to check facts? 
What does it mean to conform to facts? Like, why should things conform to facts? You're just, it's like they're just drawing the boundary just somewhere else, right? If you say, if you say God is truth, or God is the thing that knows the truth, you can say, well, that's too limited. So we do away with God and we say that facts are truth or evidence is truth. Well, when you say it like this, or when, when I say that and I see it from where I'm sitting right here, it's just like you've drawn a line somewhere else. It's almost like it's almost like some kid in the playground has drawn a circle and they've said, well, this is the boundary. And then some other kid has gone around and gone up to it and drawn an even bigger circle around it and said, well, no, this is the boundary. And I'm sort of sitting here thinking like, well, we've got the whole school to play in. We've got the whole playground as our boundary. Why are you making these tiny circles and trying to outdo each other by the size of it when there's really so much more? So as you can tell, I'm very much against the limits of scientific method. And that's not to say that scientific method doesn't have its values, doesn't have its importance, and doesn't need to be respected in so many ways. And I mean, it's so general how we speak about these things. Number eight, never seek to censor or cut yourself off from dissent. Always respect the right of others to disagree with you. And this is, well, just be open-minded. I'd say this is more good life advice, right? And it's sort of, it's sort of conservative in a way because it, it's almost like the scale of, you know, being absolutely certain or just a little bit certain. Because you can say that in this there's another scale, which is never seek to censor someone or cut yourself off from, you know, someone who disagrees with you. You can say that, but you can also say, well, well, if we put that on a scale, we would say the opposite would be seek people who do disagree with you, right? He could have worded it in that way. He could have written this law, this commandment in that way. He could have said, seek people who have a different opinion to you. And that's very different. It just shows where he sits within the spectrum of what it means to be encountering people with different beliefs and different ideas to you. Because really, if you want to be opening up your beliefs, one of the fastest ways to do that is to see, well, how different other people's beliefs are. And you don't have to go very far to start seeing that. You don't have to talk very long with people to have that happen. So that was number eight. Number number nine, form independent opinions on the basis of your own reason and experience. Do not allow yourself to be led blindly by others. 
Now, this is a hard one to reconcile with number eight if you're thinking about it as something to go a little bit further on the other end of the spectrum of. And we can say, well, why is reason the only mechanism by which you would form your opinion? I mean, he has said reason and experience. I mean, the, the, the mystic would say only use experience, right? Reason is just some sort of system of thought. So it's not really enough to gain something. And then, of course, also we have this thing, opinions. What is the use of an opinion? What is the point of an opinion? Why is it so much an important thing that out of everything in the whole human experience, you choose this to write a commandment on? I mean, you've only got 10 things, right? 10 things is not a lot to comment on. And yet number nine is form independent opinions on the basis of your own reason and experience. I mean, you can you can trump this by saying just don't have an opinion, right? Or just trust your own experience. But really, I think where he's coming from is looking at the dogma of religious tradition, and he's really trying to go against that. Number 10, question everything. So this is the philosophical side of Richard Dawkins coming through. And the funny, the funny response to question everything is, well, why should you? <laughs> right? I believe there's even a famous graffiti photo where someone's written question everything on the wall and then someone's come along and written why underneath it. And that's a rabbit hole, right? The philosopher's question after question after question, it's a rabbit hole. There are mechanisms there. There are dynamics there to understand. And it's important. I believe philosophy is important. It's a very powerful pillar of human understanding that must be contended with if you're going to have a broad perspective, a holistic perspective. So, yeah, I would tend to agree with number 10, question everything. Now, there are further comments from Dawkins. He says, quote, it is the sort of list any ordinary decent person today would come up with, end quote. And that's exactly right. I mean, his values and the things that he's commented on are from the time that he lives in. They're from the general sort of vibe of what people are thinking about in the time that they are. So at least he knows that, but I don't know how much he realizes he's in a limited time and place. And he does go on to offer a few further comments. So he's got four more sort of laws or comments that he adds to his 10. And this would be, number one, enjoy your sex life and leave others to enjoy theirs in private. So this is his sort of anti-sort anti of rebellion. I don't want to say rebellion. He's sort of this is in response to thou shalt not commit adultery and also all of the rest of the 
implications of dogma and sex and the ritual around sex and intimacy. And basically, he's a liberal. He says, enjoy your sex life and leave, leave others alone. Just keep it private. And I think that's generally accepted as, well, the times that we live, right? Most people now would agree with that. Number two, do not discriminate or oppress on the basis of sex, race, or species. Now, here Dawkins falls short, and there is a big problem with his moral compass or his moral understanding here, because he's left something out. Really, it should say, do not discriminate or oppress on the basis of sex, race, species, or creed. Do not discriminate on the basis of beliefs is what he's missing. And it's so funny that he sees belief and creed as something different to race and sex and species. When really, that's an inborn part of who we are. It's the nature of who we are. It's a cultural component of our lives which needs to be honoured. So you can see that there's a lot of there's a lot of ways in which these could be taken and used for actually not respecting people. Number three in his extra ones is do not indoctrinate your children. Teach them to think for themselves how to evaluate evidence, and how to disagree with you. Now, this is one of those things where it's like, well, easier said than done, right? Because when you're raising children, they are around you, and they still have your values wear off on them. They still have the things that are within you coming across to them. And to really comment on like how to raise children, I mean, that's a big one. That is a really big one. There's so much in that and there's so much that can go wrong. And to really leave one comment about how to raise children is is almost, it's almost like it's not enough. It, it's almost like it would do damage, right? Because if you were just going on this alone, do not... Un- do not indoctrinate your children. It would be like, well, you can easily develop this thing within yourself that you're thinking that, no, I'm not indoctrinating my children when really you're just bringing them up within your own values and yet telling yourself that you're not when really you are. And that problem exists with everyone who grows up because everyone grows up within a paradigm. Everyone grows up within a value sphere, right? This is, the, this is the science delusion. This is the delusion of thinking that the new atheists have somehow one-upped the dogma traditional, the dogma traditionalism, which they have, in a sense, because they have gone beyond those traditional values, but only by one step in a scale of many. There's a kind of arrogance in it. 
And it's a different kind of arrogance to the man in the cloud who knows everything, right? That's a kind of arrogance. But then to say that, well, you understand enough about yourself to be outside of indoctrinating your children, well, that, that is a kind of arrogance. And really, to say that, well, how to disagree with you, that's quite good. I think there's something in that. So really, there's good things and there's bad things. I mean, it's, I mean, it's, it's so funny, isn't it, how, how many tangles can come from this? how many different ways it can be taken. And then the final thing he says is, value the future on a time scale longer than your own. And that's so broad. It's so tricky to say that, well, you should value the future or think about future generations. It's like, well, okay, but how do I do that? What does that mean? You know, I've still got my problems. I still need shelter and food and my way of making my way through the world. I'm still caught up in my own situation. I've still got my own life conditions. And maybe that's just showing the limit of what it means to impose a commandment on someone. I mean, you can be, you can be idealistic about it, all sorts of things, right? You can just say all sorts of things about how good life should be. But that would be getting things off the track. Let's not go too far down that rabbit hole. So that's Richard Dawkins. And, I mean, he's a funny mix, right? Because he's got the natural side of him. Live with a sense of joy and wonder. But then he's also got this sort of mess of morality which is in so many ways underdeveloped and narrow, and yet also thinking that he's so far beyond the religious traditionalists when he's not that far beyond it. So he's a funny mix. He's quite strange. He's quite a peculiar fellow. And we know that he's not open to mysticism. You know, you've heard him talk about meditation and peak experiences and alternate states and spirituality with Sam Harris. And, and Dawkins just doesn't, he just doesn't get into it. He just it just doesn't click with him. He can't he just can't. Like it's just not in his realm of understanding. Whereas Harris, on the other hand, he does understand. He's got quite a bit more openness to those sorts of realms of understandings and paradigms than Dawkins. Very much so. And of course there's things that I can say about the limits of Harris, but there's a, there's a world of difference there between Dawkins and Harris, and that's very clear. So to really split now, we can go two ways. Because, he, uh, because Dawkins, rather, has both the atheism and the naturalist in him, we can go to the... I wanted to go to Hitchens, but maybe let's go to the Indian Commandments next because that is the paradigm that is basically all naturalist. It's all ecosystem. It's all Gaia. So if we take just that one side of 
Richard Dawkins, who's talking about live with awe and understand the world, then we expand it into 10 commandments, then we get the Indian commandments. And of course, the Indian commandments were around before Dawkins was. So it's almost like we're going backwards with our comparison. So if we, 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 we'd be going back in time chronologically to go into these Ten Commandments. So Native Americans lived very different lives. They lived off the land. They were hunters. They were gatherers. They had a communion with nature. They went from place to place, understanding that the resources were finite. The resources that they used had to replenish. They didn't need to take too much. If they took too much, then they would not have enough for the next season, for the next year, for the next generation. And they're sensitive people. They're aware of dreamtime stories, of spirits, And they have their beliefs, in some ways primitive, and in other ways rather profound, rather rather insightful into something that is larger than themselves. I mean, every, every culture has to contend with being something small inside something large. And the amount that difference is aware or the amount of awareness a a society or a culture or an individual has, the amount of awareness they have of that difference dictates, well, how they feel about their environment and their life. And that comes through in these values, that comes through in these rules. So these are the 10 Indian commandments. So this is a very this is a very different way of living to the new atheists and also of course of the religious traditionalists the Christians. So number 1 remain close to the great spirit. So this is a way of conceptualizing the largeness of reality without necessarily employing God. This is a kind of spirituality that is not deity-based. So when you have deity-based spirituality, you you, you project a personification onto that largeness of life, of reality. So that would be you have a God figure. You say the man in the clouds is the bigness of everything that's beyond me. And he has a beard and he wears a robe and he has sorts of moods and he gives us commandments, these sorts of things. Whereas with the Indian commandments, we're getting the sense that it's not a person. We can leave out the personification. We can leave out the perspective of the, the projection of ourselves as personas, as individuals into the clouds. And we can just say that there is a great spirit and that it's important and that we should remain close to it. Number two, show great respect for your fellow beings. Well, this is very similar to one of the Dawkins ones, isn't it? 
Number three, give assistance and kindness wherever needed. Now that's different to treat others how they want to be treated or don't treat others how you don't want to be treated, right? It's very much a calling for relating to others in a positive way. And it's pretty straightforward. Give assistance and kindness wherever needed. Of course, it does leave to the individual what it means to, or what it takes to identify when kindness is needed or assistance is needed. But really, I think in most cases, it's quite obvious. It's allowing the individual to use their own judgment and to trust their own judgment. So it's a kind of law which... That's very different to a law which is restricting something, which implies that you can't restrict it for yourself. You can't work it out for yourself. Whereas here, it's allowing the individual to develop their own judgment and to trust that they will do the right thing. Number four, be truthful and honest at all times. Number five, do what you know to be right. Well, that's another example of something that is empowering the individual. This is a different kind of morality. It's almost like a meta-morality. Because we can say, do something and that thing is the right thing to do. Or you can just say, do the right thing. And those are two very different things. One is one is allowing the individual to play out multiple forms of morality. There are multiple manifestations of morality, and that would still apply, right? Depending on the culture and the times and the places and the situations, what is right changes, which is why this number five is a meta-commandment. Do what you know to be right. Number six Look after the well-being of mind and body. It's quite obviously personal-based, individualistically based, isn't it? So many of these can be applied to cultures and collectives. But this is really empowering the individual, unlike many of the commandments that we've spoken about so far. Number seven, treat the earth and all that dwell there on with respect. So that comes back to their understanding of how they sit within the natural sphere. Number eight, take full responsibility for your actions. There's a lot in that too, isn't there? If you really respond, because remember what responsibility means, response-able. You are able to respond. You have the ability to respond. And re, in English, R-E, means to do something again. 
So when you have your actions, you then need to have something that further connects to that, whether it's an understanding or a behavioral response or a feeling or even just generally an awareness. And that's what responsibility looks like. So your actions shouldn't sit within you as just this one-off thing. You can't just do an act and then forget all about it. And really, if we were to apply that to like a whole lifetime, you see how big a mission that is. You see how big a statement that is. Like how do you, how do you take responsibility for every single action that you've done? Can you have either a thought, a feeling, a, an awareness or another action in relation to every single action that you've already done so far. That is the perfect image of the integrated human being. And really, you'd have to leave out further actions, right? Actions because of actions, that's a slippery slope. I mean, in so many ways, there's only ever more actions in response to an action when it's a negative thing. That's what's coming to mind for me. That's how it feels for me. Which would mean that if you stop your actions and you reflect on it by thought and by feeling and by awareness, then you can actually integrate it. Because action takes so much energy. There's so much limit to how much how much limit that you can like how do i say this it's it's like there's it's almost like there's a a certain amount of propellant that we have which drives action and thought and feeling and if you use up a certain amount of that then there's not enough left over right and the probably the most that the the most that is taken up by that propellant is action like the most the thing that takes the most effort is action the thing that leaves you the most depleted is action so to respond in a way that would be integrating your actions it would have to be something it's just it's just not efficient enough to respond to action with action it's reactionary it's not responsibility it's not awareness. It's not integration. So to flesh out this commandment of take responsibility for your actions, we'd have to say, take a good look at what you're doing. Think about the implications. Understand the consequences of your actions. Understand that it was because of the actions that certain things unfolded and understand that it was your choice to do that action. That's a more detailed look at responsibility. That's a more detailed look at what it means to really integrate your actions. And really, I feel there's a lot in that. I feel there's 
so much in responsibility. And I mean, if we're looking, if we're looking just at awareness, thought, and feeling and understanding, that's just some of the ways in which responsibility is born out of actions or how you go about developing responsibility for actions. So, yeah, that's a deep one. Take full responsibility for your actions. There's probably, I feel there's more in that, but let's keep moving. Number nine, dedicate a share of your efforts to the greater good. Well, this one, I mean, the Indians, they lived in tribes. It was a tribal culture. And now we don't really have a lot of opportunity to dedicate something to the greater good. What can you do? You can give to charity. You can do volunteer work. You can take steps to find a community and be a part of it. But I think in this modern world, those sorts of opportunities are rare. Now we have your job, which you do for yourself so that you can get paid, and you pay your taxes, which you have to do. I don't think many people see paying taxes as dedicating a share of their efforts to the greater good. I mean, now now what's coming to mind is like, it's almost like taxes ruin that value of giving to the greater good because it's an obligation because you have to do it you don't get like like how many how many people really feel you know i feel great to be paying taxes because i have all these wonderful things you know i have the infrastructure in my country i have the social securities i have the different institutions and the whatnots because i pay taxes how many people really feel that and I mean, this is in a developed country. This is Australia, I'm talking. Many countries don't even have tax systems like we do. But there's something that is gained. There's, there's, a, there's a need which is in each person which is satisfied by giving a share of efforts, a share of one's efforts to the greater good. And that is the need for belonging. That is the need for community. That is the need for knowing your place within the biggest sphere. Again, it comes back to this thing, which is that you are a small thing inside a big thing. How do you contend with that? And if you don't have something to give to, you don't have a community, well... You're a very small thing, which is very largely disconnected from the larger things. So there's a lot in that. There's a great wisdom in that. And I would say, find the right thing. Find the right greater good to dedicate your efforts to. And just a share of them. I mean, it's quite wise that they say, Dedicate a share of your greater efforts. It's not the same as saying dedicate your entire self to the greater good, right? That's very different again. 
So number 10, which is the final of the 10 Indian commandments, is work together for the benefit of all mankind. So (laughs) you see how now it is actually a dedication of everything that you have. I mean, you could take it that way. I mean, you could say that I'm just passing out different limits to these, which are overthinkings. (laughs) But again, it comes back to this thing of being something small in something large. And you could say, well, where, where's, the, where's the emphasis in this sentence? Work together for the benefit of all mankind. So there's, there's three ways we could accentuate that. We could say, work together for the benefit of all mankind. Or we could say, work together for the benefit of all mankind. Or we could say, work together for the benefit of all mankind. So it's funny how even just in the pronunciation of the words, (laughs) there are three different meanings, right? And the linguist can knock on the door and say, well, actually, the the correct weighting of significance within these words means a certain number of means this certain way because of the structure of language that we understand. But I would say to that, no, there's actually ambiguousness in this. Well, I I wouldn't say on purpose, but it's one of the beauties of it, right? It's one of the things that leaves it open to what part of it is going to resonate with you. Is it that... We are working together, that is the most important? Or is it that it is for the benefit that is the most important? Or is it that it's for all mankind? I mean, we could say work together for, well, I mean, you wouldn't say work together for the, for the destruction of all mankind. <laughs> maybe, maybe that rule would apply in some cultures. <laughs> But you wouldn't also say work together for the benefit of some of mankind because that would be fraction dividing. And you wouldn't say work in groups for the benefit of all mankind. It's like somehow it's, it's found this thing which is applicable to all and, and just works. It's just, it just works somehow. And I understand that that works because of the wisdom and the knowledge and the experience that the Indians had with the larger sphere of existence, with Gaia, with Mother Nature, with Earth, Wind, Water and Fire and all the rest of it, all those naturalistic pre-colonial paradigms, perspectives the Dreamtime stories, as we call them, for the Aboriginal Australians. Australians. So, that's the ten Indian commandments.
Okay, so we're still here. It's still now. <laughs> we come to, at this moment, at this time, Christopher Hitchens. So this set of commandments that Hitchens has come up with is in direct response to the original Ten Commandments. And actually, it's a thing that goes hand in hand. Like, he, he presents his critique of what's wrong with the original Ten Commandments and then says, okay, now use these instead, or these would be better. So, in the case of Dawkins, it's like, well, he's a militant atheism and he talks out against religion and then he's come up with his own Ten Commandments. But in the case of Hitchens, it's directly contrary to the Ten Commandments in their original form. So keep that in mind, and you'll see how that is effect, how that has an effect, how that has a weight on the commandments that he's come up with. And... To say more generally, I mean, there's so much in Hitchens. There's so much intelligence, so much clear cultural commentary, so many different references and literary references that he's quite a he's quite a big one to I mean, you can't really sum him up. You can't really summarize Hitchens and his views because it's just so rich, it's so vast, it's so complex. And of course, it's easy to just say, well, he didn't know this or he didn't know about that. Anyone can play that. But one thing is for sure is that he was definitely very intellectual, very clear in the conclusions that he drew and the reasonings that he had. And he was a rationalist. He is in the same camp as the rationalists. But they're rationalists and they're rationalists, really. And Hitchens, well, I, I don't want to say <laughs> I don't want to say anything bad about him <laughs> because he's so much more like he's just got so much more weight than me. But either way, let's let's go through these. Let's have a look at this. Let's continue forth on our comparisons. I mean, you. you you're probably by now starting to get an image of some of the differences between them and how they are similar in some ways and different in others and responsive in others and how they are within different paradigms and life conditions. So let's take a look at these. This is Christopher Hitchens. Number one, do not condemn people on the basis of their ethnicity or their colour. Now, like Dawkins, he left out beliefs or creed. And that is the difference between new rationalists and traditionalists, which is that the tr rationalists believe you should be able to critique people's creed or beliefs. Number two, do not ever even think of using people as private property or as owned 
or as slaves. It's quite strange that, I mean, this this appears now as sort of like one of those ones where you think, well, did you really need to give us a whole rule? Did you need to use one of your Ten Commandments to say that? When really most cultures have done away with slavery already. And it might mean that he means something different. I mean, you could take it in a more subtle kind of increment and say, well, if you're paid for a job, is that kind of a kind of ownership? Like if you employ someone, is that not slavery, but in a subtle kind of way, a type of ownership over someone, or at least over part of what someone is. And I don't think he's saying do away with the free market or the employment systems that we've got and the job market that we've got. But you could say that, well, maybe in that there's different ways to employ someone. There's an, there's an attitude between, but there's an attitude behind how you employ someone, how you pay someone for their labor, which is to be understood and recognized and done in an ethical way. And I don't think he means that. I think he's really thinking about slavery in terms of as it was back in the day. And that's why he's put that there. Number three, despise those who use violence or the threat of it in sexual relations. So that's a different stance to Dawkins, isn't it? Where he's saying, allow people to enjoy their own sex lives in private. Here, Hitchens is actually stepping out against violence. He's actually, in a sense, going against what he is seeing as something wrong, something as immoral. And he's making a rule in response to that. I mean, you could ask, well, are rules always in response to the immoral? Is that what rules are? Is that what commandments are for? They are contending with the things that are wrong within us. Number four, hide your face and weep if you should dare to harm a child. Now, this, of course, is like so many of these, very broad. What does it mean to harm a child? Does he mean indoctrination? Does he mean not giving the child what they want? Or does he mean something much more worse, much more gruesome, much more violent? And I think generally, well, it is a good thing to say that we shouldn't harm children. And there is a clear line. I mean... Uh, Is there a clear line between having to make a parental decision that the child feels uncomfortable about and actually being a predator towards a child? And I think in most cases we would be able to see that difference. I think most of the time we can. I mean, when the child is at the supermarket and... They're having a tantrum and the parent picks them up and just carries them out. 
Well, the child doesn't want to be carried out in that situation, right? <laughs> but no one in the supermarket is thinking, oh, that abusive parent. <laughs> They're just thinking kids will be kids. Or at least that's what I think. I don't know what other people are thinking. So, yeah, I mean, it's good to acknowledge the children. It's come up before with Dawkins talking about indoctrinating the children. And it's still limited, right, to say don't harm a child. Well, that doesn't give you much to go on in terms of parental advice, but at least it's an acknowledgement of the children. Number five, do not condemn people for their inborn nature. Why would God create so many homosexuals only in order to torture and destroy them? Well, that's just his discussion, isn't it? That's just his take on religion. And who's to say what is inborn nature and what is not? Do you want to be the judge of that? Like, is a belief system an inborn nature? Is a cultural conditioning an inborn nature? Well, it might not be inborn in that it can't be changed, but it's definitely something that for so many years is out of our control, is out of our understanding, out of our awareness. So that's a tricky one. I mean, it makes sense. And it's definitely something I can agree with on the face value of it. But to go deeper, you would say, well, what is inborn nature? Like, what if it's your inborn nature to be violent? What if it's your inborn nature to be unintelligent? To have a cognitive disadvantage, a mental disadvantage? What if it's your inborn nature to be impulsive? or desperate, or to be unconscious? These are tricky questions. These are, well, these are moral dilemmas. You know, I can see a whole realm of moral dilemmas opening up as to how someone should be condemned. Because you can always say, you can always counter this, number five, do not condemn people for their inborn nature by saying, well, what should you condemn them for? Why isn't it simply, don't condemn people? Why have you drawn the line between not condemning people and condemning people? And why does it have this factor of their inborn nature as the most important thing? I mean, there are so many things you could not condemn people for other than just their inborn nature, as I've mentioned. So why is it the inborn nature that's so important? He could have said something about, I mean, really, with this question, you know, this rhetorical, philosophical question, why would God create so many homosexuals in order to torture and destroy them? Really, he's getting to the point there, right? That's where he's coming from. He's talking about homosexuality, which is something that, He does not condemn, which other people do condemn. That's what he's trying to pass out. So he's recognized that this thing of condemning people 
comes about depending on the beliefs and the values and the perspectives of the situation of those involved. And he's seen a problem in that and he's tried to reconcile it. Number six, be aware that you too are an animal and dependent on the web of nature. Try and think and act accordingly. Now this one, if you look at this, you can say, well, this is the whole Ten Commandments of the Indian Commandments. That's where they're coming from. Show respect for beings, give assistance, be honest, know your place in the world, treat the earth with respect, have responsibility for your actions, dedicate your efforts to the greater good, these sorts of things. This is an, the, the truth that you are an animal and dependent on the web of nature. So you could say that the Ten Indian Commandments are a kind of expansion on this number six by Hitchens. And another way to take this is to say that, well, you're an animal, as in you have animalistic instincts, you have animalistic impulses, you have the animal side to you. But I don't think he means that. I don't think that's what he's trying to get at. I think what he's trying to get at is more this idea of being within the biosphere, being connected to the biosphere. Number seven, do not imagine that you can escape judgment if you rob people with a false prospectus rather than with a knife. So this would be in the case of fraud or some kind of deception that would on the face of it, appear to be like a good business deal or a good investment or a good arrangement in any sort of situation like that. And that really is that really is tricky because I have had some experience with looking at that from the other side. And the thing is that the people who are doing that really believe that they are doing nothing wrong. They're taking an advantage within the law. And the thing that comes to mind is this whole big bailout of the banks in the 2008 financial crisis. Because in that, there were many cases of the institution setting up a false financial structure which ultimately led to the cheating of the individuals of those involved. And of course, there's a whole array of complexities and ins and outs of that which I don't understand and I don't know about. But overall, this rule applies, right? It wasn't like the banks were robbing people at knife point. It's not like the banks took their money by force. Rather, it was by a kind of false prospectus. And really, it's so complicated that you would look into it and say that the banks aren't individuals. Like, we're talking about the banks as, as if they, they are people. They're institutions. And it gets, it gets very complicated when institutions and laws and systems and contracts and these sorts of things are involved. And 
really it's a bit it's a bit like it's a bit idealistic for Hitchens to say this because of course I'd love to live in a world where people don't do that and I'd love to live in a world where you could say this law this uh this commandment and people would think okay well that's the right thing to do so I better do that but that's just not the case it's just not how it works now we come to number 8 and I like this one so much this is probably the best hitchens commandment that he's got turn off your fucking cell phone you have no idea how unimportant your call is to us <laughs> so this was in this was in 2010 he said this so f- since then we've probably had even more of an uprising and i mean we could expand it to say get off your phone and stop messaging rather than phone calling <laughs> i guess having someone message on their phone is less intrusive Having someone near you messaging on their phone is less intrusive than having them talk on their phone, right? That's not so much of the problem if they're messaging. But (laughs) still, I mean, we've got a culture that's run away with the fascination, the obsession with these smartphones so much more than was just even 10 years ago. So this one still stands, Turn off your fucking cell phone. If you just left it at that, that would be good. But he added, you have no idea how unimportant your call is. I mean, if you want to shorten it, you can. There's nothing wrong with that. Just turn off your fucking cell phone. It's very practical. And it's very much it's very much like, you know, all these commandments, they're so big and they're so, like, moralistic and they're talking about the different worlds and the different moralities and this and that and problems and inborn natures and all the rest of it. But then to actually have something that is down to earth, practical, real, and that really we should be able to all agree on it, right? Just turn off your fucking cell phone. It's that simple. And it's so it's it's such a relief to have a commandment that is <laughs> like quite funny and yet real and solid. So it's my favorite one of all the Hitchens commandments. Number nine denounce all jihadists and crusaders for what they are psychotic criminals with ugly delusions and terrible sexual repressions. And this is in line with the flavor of many of these Hitchens' commandments, which is that he's talking out about the things that he sees that is wrong with certain belief systems. And so much of his career was surrounding, so much of his commentary was surrounding jihadism and crusaders and belief systems that lead people to actions of a violent nature. So it's understandable that he would say this, considering 
all that he was involved in, all that he was commentating on. And to simplify it, I mean, to, to get the essence out of it, you would say, or you could say, don't let a belief structure lead to violence. Or don't let your beliefs lead to destructive behaviors. Something like that. That's really what it's getting to. And the thing about sexual repressions is, well, that comes into the other side of certain belief systems, which is the dogmatism of thou shalt not commit adultery. And Hitchens is aware of this. He's thought about this. He's sort of got behind all of these, the workings that, if you understand, means that they make sense. I mean, all of these, like I've been saying throughout, they they are limited on the surface. But with Hitchens, we know there is a the reasoning behind it and there are a collection of understandings that he has that, if you know, makes sense to what he's leading to say, what he comes to say. Number 10, be willing to renounce any God or faith if any holy commandments should contradict any of the above. So basically, this is his way of saying that he's better than tradition. This is his way of saying, asserting that this is a better way forward. This is a way to actually live up to something which is superior to those traditional commandments. And I mean, geez, man, do you really want to say that about yourself? Do you really want to be so sure? Do you really want to put yourself into that position of playing God, of playing the supreme judge, the supreme ruler in so many ways. And he also adds that, as a further final statement, in short, don't swallow your moral code in tablet form, which is a little bit ironic because it's sort of what's being encouraged with Ten Commandments, right? When we say, what are the Ten Commandments? It's like saying, tell me what sort of morality I should live by in simple, in a simple way. Simplify it for me. Just make it easy to remember so that I don't have to carry around a book as a moral code. I can just have something quick and easy to refer to. So he says that, and yet that's what Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments that he's come up with, are strangely encouraging. And I don't think they're so bad. I mean, it's not like you can say that they don't work. I mean, if you apply if you apply these, you get certain things and you miss out on other certain things. And I think for a lot of Hitchens, in certain cultures, they just wouldn't apply. Like if you have a culture where children are respected and there's a law system for 
sexual violence and there's no slavery and there are no extremist religious believers, then you've pretty much, you know, that's basically more than half of his, more, more than half of his commandments become irrelevant. And there are many modern cultures that are more or less like that. So it's almost like he's pitching these commandments only to a certain time and place and culture and certain belief systems. It's like he's only been able to come up with his rules or his guide in response to a certain perspective. And, well, I guess that's why he's called the contrarian, right? That was one of the things that he was called. That's one of the things that he was categorized as, a contrarian, to be against a certain something. And I think that sticks. I think that's a clear image of how he views the world. So that's Christopher Hitchens. That's the last of the new atheists. There is also a few other new atheist Ten Commandments. And there's a few books on different rules, and they're all so they've all sort of got the same flavor. Like there's different different there's there's slightly different subtle differences in there. But they all have the same sort of flavor, and I think you get enough of that. If you've got Beetroot Russell, Richard Dawkins, and Christopher Hitchens, then you understand enough of the atheist paradigm to just get a sense of what that's like and how it is contrasting and how it overlaps with naturalism and how there are different explanations of the same thing sometimes and different examples and different scales of where they sit in certain spectrum understandings. So... That's the new atheist paradigm. And now we come to Osho. Osho, Osho, Osho. <laughs> My goodness, what are we going to do with Osho? <laughs> well, I hope you'll see that he is a completely different ball game. He's out of the park. He's not even close. He's completely off the charts compared to the paradigms that we have been speaking about thus far. And I hope you really can sense that. I hope you get a sense of that. And one way simply to categorize him is to say, well, he's a mystic. He's a visionary guru. He's a spiritual teacher. He's a spiritual leader. Which makes him very different. But that's really just 
simple labels that we put on him. That's just a way into understanding what he's on about. Really, if we look at it in all its depth, he's beyond categorization. He doesn't fit into even the label mystic or spiritual leader or guru. So there's not much, I mean, there's not much I can do to give a <laughs> give a proper introduction for Osho. I mean, we've spoken about Osho in the past and we'll speak about him again. But if this is your first taste of mysticism, your first encounter with someone who is really just beyond these current paradigms, which is the new atheist paradigm, then all I can say is be open-minded, be ready for something different, and realize that they're coming from a completely different place. And Osho, he, he really does understand these paradigms. He understands the atheist paradigm. He understands philosophy. He understands naturalism. He understands religious dogmatism and how destructive it's been and how bad the religious institutions have affected cultures across centuries and millennia. And he can really explain it well. He really talks about it and moves in and out of these in such a beautiful way. He really is a cut above the rest. And it's so far beyond that we need new terminology. We need new examples. We need new things that aren't related to anything that we've spoken about so far. We need things that are able to break out of any bubbles that we may have developed so far in our understanding of the world. And if you really listen to Osho, if you're really open to his teachings, you will get a sense of your beliefs opening. You'll get a, the, the feeling, the sensation, the experience of having your beliefs dissolve, having your values broken open and there's really so much that I feel I could share personally in what that's been like for me and maybe that's a story for another day maybe my personal story shouldn't come into this too much but that at least gives a bit of an idea of what we're working with and you'll see I hope how you can it's it's possible for the atheists to appear very close to religious dogmatism when you contrast it with someone who's so much further outside of the range of possibilities as osho so i hope that becomes clear i hope that's something that you'll get a sense of at least as we go into the Ten Commandments by Osho. So, here we go. Number one. 
never obey anyone's command unless it comes from within you. Now, Osho, one of his ideas or one of his things is that he empowers the individual. And he does this in an extreme way. He does this overtly. He does this very strongly. He's very much about empowering individuals. Now, with some of these commandments that we've spoken about so far, you can get a sense that the individual is responsible. You can get the idea that it's up to you as an individual to live out certain things. But with Osho, he's much more explicit about it. He's much more confronting with the idea. He pushes the idea much more strongly that it's up to you. It's up to the individual to become empowered and to take their own life in their own hands. And that comes across in many of his, his teachings. That's all throughout his teachings, not just in these Ten Commandments here. So never obey anyone's command unless it comes from within you. Now that seems to have a lot more clarity than, say, the command of Beetroot Russell, who said something about have no respect for the authority of others. It might be that they were trying to get at the same thing. It might be that the essence had something in common there, but Osho's been able to make it very clear. Osho's been able to hit the nail on the head, as it were. So never obey anyone's command unless it comes from within you. The other thing about this is that, well, with a law, with a commandment such as Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. Well, that's something to do with the inner world, right? And also, you could say the same about the commandments that are to do with feelings, such as feel certain things or don't feel certain things. But here, Osho has right off the bat said that things come from within you. And that's something that you must honor. That's something that you must be aware of. And that's implied in this number one commandment. Number two, there is no God other than life itself. So Osho spent many years, many of his teachings, denouncing belief systems around God. And he talked at great length at the destructive nature of dogmatism and religious fundamentalism. And in fact, a lot of the ideas that Christopher Hitchens used in his book, God is Not Great, were actually ideas that Osho spoke about. They were actually Osho's ideas. And of course, Hitchens did go and learn from Osho. He actually went as a journalist to be a part of his ashram and see what it was all about. And when he came out, well, he had not very nice reviews to say about Osho. Hitchens was very much 
one to speak out against Osho. And I believe he misunderstood him. And it's quite, I want to say ironic, but that's not really quite the right word. It's quite funny, but it's not really funny that Hitchens has used Osho's ideas to talk out about God and then has lumped Osho in with the religious crowd. And that's known as the pre-trans fallacy. That's part of misunderstanding how paradigms are independent from one another and also have qualitative differences and also interact with each other. And I believe that's something Hitchens missed, which is why he didn't understand Osho. But maybe that's too much of a comparison. Maybe that's too much of a rabbit hole to go down. And I like that Osho has said there is no God other than life itself. So he hasn't said there is no God. He could have left it at that. But he says God is life itself. So if you want to still find solace or hope or some sort of use in a conception of God, even if it's abstract or not necessarily a man in the clouds with a beard, then you can say that God is life itself. Life is my God. And so that still leaves a degree of how much you can use it, it leaves a, a it, it leaves still the opportunity to use God in a certain way and yet not in the religious fundamentalist way. And I think that's wise. I think that for some people certain notions of God within certain paradigms, within higher paradigms, can be a good thing. And it's in those higher paradigms that God becomes a kind of simile to words like infinite, infinity or existence or essence or, in this case, life itself. Number three, the truth is within you. Do not search for it elsewhere. Now, this is a very heavy hit. This is so profound. This is so important. Everything that we've talked about up until now, everyone has said things about how important truth is, how important it is to not lie, to not be untruthful, and all different variations of that. But here... Osho is actually saying what the truth is. He's actually giving the answer to the question, what is truth? And it holds up because he comes back to the individual and he says, the truth is within you. Do not search for it elsewhere. Now, of course, if you take that at face value, you can say, well, what does, what does it mean it's within me? If you have no understanding of meditation or awareness practices or spiritual transformative practices or expansive perception 
or any of those sorts of things and the rest of all the associated things that go along with all those things, then of course it's quite confusing. But if you do know those things, then a statement like, well, the truth is within you, makes perfect sense. And of course you know that it's not a thing that is just an answer and then you've got it. It's an ongoing occurrence. It's an ongoing happening. It's something that comes up again and again and a thing that it's a thing that is given to you as an opportunity to step closer towards. And really in that image truth is something to live up to. And it's entirely up to you and it's within your power to live up to it. So that's heavy. That's really something that is very far outside of all of the commandments that we've spoken about so far today. The truth is within you. Do not search for it elsewhere. Number four. Love is prayer. Now, it's quite funny that he said there is no God other than life itself, and now he's talking about prayer. So often, prayer is, well, I'd say it is most often associated with just talking to God. So why is he saying that love is prayer? What does that mean? What could that mean? Well, of course, I can only go off what I think it means and what is my impression, as is with all of these. And the way I see it, the way I look at it, look at it is that when you, when you pray to God, you're talking with reverence, you're talking with sincerity, and you're talking with something that's a deep core of a part of you. You're not really trying to satisfy petty things. You're trying to find something deeper. And depth is love. Depth is where you find love, where you connect with love again. And if we say that, then, well, anything that you say to anyone that moves you towards depth and love is prayer. Because another thing to consider is that, well, everyone is a god. This is more the eastern side, the eastern take on religion, which is that everyone has their role to play and everyone is a manifestation of Godhead in a different form. So by that logic, we would say that everything you say can be a prayer. Anything that is being said can bring you towards love, can bring you towards reverence, majesty, profundity, authenticity, these deeper things in life. You can get this sense now with something like this, that Osho, he's going deep. He's really going deep. He's going to the point of it. He's really trying to get into it. And another thing I'll say about prayer is that you can look at it as a technique. You can look at it as a kind of conveyor belt. 
And there are many speaking techniques, there are many methods that we've spoken about and I've explained before. But prayer is a kind of category of techniques like meditation. And there are multiple dynamics to it and processes to it. And of course, it's been largely misunderstood. It's not quite the same as meditation in that it's taken off and delivered huge beneficial results to millions of people across multiple generations. You can't really say that about prayer. Prayer has prayer has got to be done in a specific kind of way with a larger understanding for it to have a positive effect or for it to have its real full effect. Whereas with meditation, if you don't know much about it, it's still going to give you an effect which is positive. So that would be a difference between meditation and prayer. And really this connection between love and speaking or relating to the other has quite a lot to it. And I mean, we could say, well, how do you define love? How does Osho define love? And of course he spent decades talking about love and there's a lot in that so there's probably there's probably too much in that for us to go right into so let's just say that there's another rabbit hole that we can go down on another day number five to become a nothingness is the door to truth nothingness itself is the means the goal and attainment So this is an extension on number two, in a way, which is, sorry, number three, which is the truth is within you. Do not search for it elsewhere. And he's got this idea which we could call dissolving. That's another way that he puts it in other talks that he does, which is that you dissolve non-truth. When you do away with non-truth then you're left with truth. And non-truth, he would say, is everything. Everything is non-truth. You really become nothing. Now, that's not to get twisted into words to say that, well, there is no truth. There is no such thing as truth. No. What he's talking about is experientially. The things that are within your experience, everything that is within your experience, is non-truth because it's only partial it's only part of what's going on and what's really happening it's only a portion of the totality of everything and this is another thing that you need to understand about osho which is that he's very much nested in experientialism which means the phenomenon of what it means for you to be in a place is what he's working with. And this is how he gets at this. He says, to become a nothingness is the door to truth. So think think about what you are in a given situation. Think about what you have phenomenologically in any situation. You've got your perceptions, 
So there's what you see, there's what you hear, there's what you feel, what you can touch, the sensations on your skin. There's the atmosphere, there's the air around you, there's the smells. And then there's the feeling inside, there's the emotion, or it might be a kind of tiredness, or a mood, or a deeper sort of sensation that is beyond just the confines of the surface of the skin. And then there's also the mind. There's the thoughts, there's the images. And you can really get in touch with this if you close your eyes, of course. You can hear the voice in your head or the voices. You can see things happening in your mind's eye. So all of that is the phenomenon of what you are. And Osho is saying to become nothingness is the door to truth. So it is to dissolve all of that. To be away with all of your feelings, all of your perceptions, all of your mind. And it's quite tricky because this can be taken the wrong way to say, well, is it a kind of withdrawal from the world? Is it a kind of monk renunciation lifestyle? that he's advocating? And the answer is no. He was very much also a part of the world. Because truth is also what you are, what is happening. And that's a kind of trick of these non-dual philosophies, which you can easily fall into. It's easy to misunderstand these. So don't get me wrong. Don't get it as a kind of one-sided philosophy. Just understand that we're working with the phenomenon and we're working with dissolving non-truth. So that's what I get from number five, which is to become a nothingness is the door to truth. Nothingness itself is the means, the goal and the attainment. So, now we come to number six. And number six is, life is now and here. Here we are now. (laughs) That's what I'm always saying, right? Now and here. And this is so profound. This has so many implications because, of course... The religious traditions are telling you, telling you, telling us that this isn't the real life. Life is in heaven. Life is after death. What you see here now is just a waiting room or a testing ground. And the rationalist paradigm would tell you, well, this isn't actually truth. Truth is something we need to go through a system to find. And the rationalist scientific mind or paradigm also has with it the success success meme in capitalism, which is progress, which is earn more money, earn more material gain, do your work, and then you will arrive at life. 
So really to say life and is here and now is very much beyond all of that. It's very much a mystical, meditative, spiritual statement. And of course you see this in Ram Das and his slogan, Be Here Now. That's the same idea. And then there's, of course, all sorts of popularizations with Eckhart Tolle having his book, The Power of Now. And the now and now and the presence and the here and all of that is, is it's sort of a staple of the mystical, I want to say mystical, the, the spiritual meditative paradigm. It's one of the staples in there. But it's quite important. It's quite important to remember that. It's a staple for a reason. Number seven, live wakefully. So this would be a kind of other side to number five, which is to become nothingness. To live wakefully is to actually go into your perceptions and to embrace the richness, the richness of your perceptions and your feelings and your thoughts. When you become aware and you become more awake, those things become more real. The things within your phenomenal experience become more vibrant. They become more, in a sense, alive. They've got a higher aperture, a higher detail of, like, what do you call the, like, Definition, higher definition, that's it. It's a higher resolution on the screen. So live wakefully. And how you do that, well, that's the whole path of meditation. That's the whole path of transformative practice and perception practice, perception techniques. Number eight, do not swim, float. So this comes back again to the phenomenon of making your way through life. And I'm just taking it at face value and what comes to mind for me is that when you swim, you're struggling. You're struggling with life. You're trying to work something out of reality. You're trying to get something out of your situation. You're trying to get something out of your conditions, your life conditions, your current circumstances. And that's swimming, when really, if you float, well then, first of all, that's a hell of a lot easier. It's a lot less effort. And it allows for appreciating what's here. Appreciating, appreciating what you have. And perhaps in a more literal sense, in a much less abstract sense, Osho himself did have a way of walking, which many people commented was like floating. <laughs> so when they saw him walking, they would say, is he actually taking steps or is he floating? So that's a more of a... That's more of a literal thing. And, and, and if we were to take this literally, right, don't swim, float, then you can go to the pool and you can float, right? We don't even have to, we don't even have to do the philosophical interpretation or the metaphorical interpretation of this 
commandment and we can go and make it a technique. We can make it a practice. And if you haven't done this, I suggest you try it. You can notice how it's actually, it's actually a really good way. Like if you don't, if, if all this talk about phenomenon and experiencing and experientialism and it's not quite, it's not quite working, it's, you're not quite understanding it, then actually do this practice. Actually go and float. Go to the local pool or go to the wherever, go to the waterhole and have some time floating and notice how that experience is different and also notice how you feel afterwards. Notice how it's different as a sensation of being you, what it's like to be in your body, in your life at that moment. And that difference you can extrapolate out into all actions and all ways of going about doing things. And it's really a more mature understanding of the difference between feeling and action or sensation and behavior. There's a strong connection there. There's a strong thing to understand between those two sides of what it's like to be you. And I believe that's what Osho is getting at when he says, do not swim, float. Number nine, die each moment so that you can be new each moment. Some things are just too heavy for me to comment on. And some of the time I know that and I try and comment otherwise and in some of those cases I feel like I wish I hadn't have said anything (laughs) and this is one of those occasions where I don't think I need to comment I don't think I'm going to try it's really just it's 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 too much it's too far out of my and I mean with all of this Osho stuff, really, in a sense, it's it's over my head. It's too far beyond anything that I can grapple with. But particularly with this one, this is something that can just stand alone. So think about this as just a statement that stands alone. Die each moment so that you can be new each moment. And now number 10. Do not search that which is, is. Stop and see. And that's a world of difference to so many of these commandments that we've talked about where they've got a process or an analysis or a method or 
some sort of complex mind game which is devised to bring you to truth. And truth is truth, which is something you don't hear said often enough. Truth is right here, right now. Truth is right in front of your face. And I can get the image that many of these commentators who have created these commandments, which are designed to bring you to truth, very much live in a world of the mind. They live in a world of thoughts. They're not centered in perception. They're not centered in immediacy. And that's what Osho is trying to get at. He's trying to get at immediacy. He's trying to get at presence, which is something that's beyond the mind, which is something, it's something that is, in a way, actually diluted when the mind comes into it, when thought comes into it. When thoughts overtake you, you're not in your perceptions. They they can't really be, I mean, we can speculate. I mean, are we going to divide? It, it, it depends what you want to say about you're dividing your own experience because you can say there's only ever one experience, right? There's only ever one thing. Oneness pervades all things. But more practically, to get at an understanding of this, you would say that, Yes, there is a difference between perception and thought, and those things can't coexist. They can't occur at least deeply, profoundly at the same time, which is why when you really want to think about something, you close your eyes. You stop perceiving what's around you. When you, when you have no distractions in your internal, your external world, sorry, then you're more likely to start thinking about things. So this this is another sort of one that's over my head, I would say. It's do not search that which is, is. Stop and see. And it's really just a simple summary of what can be gained from coming back to senses. Coming back to your senses. It's funny that that's a saying, isn't it? Come back to your senses. You got knocked out of your senses. I guess that's a phrase that comes to mind when I'm thinking about this. Now, Osho, this is very important. This is the most important thing to understand about Osho and his Ten Commandments. This is something that cannot be forgotten. He actually, after he had said these Ten Commandments, he actually said that there was a, there is a golden rule. There is a supreme rule. And this, he should not be forgiven for forgetting about it. This is something that he says he must have at the very forefront of all of these as you come to understand these. And this is the golden rule. It's not the golden rule as in treat others as you want to be treated. This is the golden rule as in the supreme rule, the, the, the ultimate rule. This is the rule that would end all rules. And he says that 
the rule is, the supreme rule is, there are no rules. And that's very important to understand. That's very different to all of these other paradigms that are offering you something as if they actually know what's good for you. So that in itself gives Osho a cut above the rest in my books. That sets him apart very much so. So the golden rule, and I think it's a good golden rule, there are no rules. I think that's a safe thing to put in that position. Because then you could say, well, if there are no rules, then does that mean there are rules? And then you're covered on both sides, right? But if you don't say there are no rules, then, well, then you just think that there are rules. And you get caught up in so much. It's, it's almost like saying, you know, you know all, these, all these commandments, there's so many of them. Just don't take them too seriously. Don't bet too much on them. Don't really take them to heart too much. And I think that's something good to remember. That's something to be reminded of. And another thing I notice about Osho's is, well, you realize that he's very much affirmative with his. He's giving you things to do which are positive. He's giving you things to be. He's giving you things to experience. And that's very different to the vast majority of the others, which are don't do this, don't do that, don't do these things, turn away from these certain things, resist these certain things, and so on. So that's just another thing that comes from Osho or sets Osho apart from the others. And of course, I'm biased. I mean, like, I like Osho. I've had so many experiences with his methods and techniques that I've got a bias towards his teachings. And I I make no hiding of that. I make no problem of that. I mean, I don't see why. I mean, all of of the, the things we've discussed today are sort of nested in my own understanding and my own tastes anyway. And I said that at the start, so... You've known that. There's probably a lot more we can talk about with Osho. And we'll do that at another time. I mean, there's a rich... I mean, I mean, with, all, with probably all of these anyway, there's more to the teachings of the people. Just like you would say that Christianity isn't just the Ten Commandments. Well... Just these Ten Commandments with anyone else is not just their teachings. So we'll get into it. I mean, there's a lot there. I mean, these are people which have many ideas that are worth understanding, worth knowing about. So we will discuss them. So then, if you've made it this far... We come to the final 
commandments, the final ten. <laughs> and these are my own ones. So I feel very different, right, immediately talking about my own ten commandments. And first of all, I don't put myself in the same category as these people, right? E even the new atheists. Just because I can see certain perspectives and paradigms and move in and out of them differently to the new atheists, it doesn't mean I have anywhere near the mental capacity, the cognitive capacity, the speaking capacity, and all the rest of it that they do. These are heavy hitters. Hitchens, Dawkins, they are heavy hitters. So it might be that it's come across like I'm sort of against them, but I very much still have a respect for them. And of course, I don't put myself in the category of any of these people. This is just a bit of fun. These are just things that I've been thinking about. So if you do want to write these down, you can, but that's as far as I would say to go with them. <laughs> I mean, all the rest you can look up, right? The Osho ones, the Hitchens ones, the Indian ones, all, all of these are on the internet. They're all on either Wikipedia or just a mainstream website, wherever you want to find them. But here is the only place you'll find mine, which is why you might want to write them down. But that, that's as far as you can take it. You don't need to start living by them or, or at least see what would it be like? How would it feel? How would you think to be living from them? And in a way, it's easier for me to come up with things because I've gone through all these other commandments and I've been able to sort of get a feeling of the certain ones that I like and the certain essences that they're trying to get at. And then I've been able to come up with my own wordings and my own feelings and also to have that in with the rest of my own ideas and my own experiences. And that makes it much easier for me, right? It's always easier. It's always easier to comment on something that's been before and then come up with something in relation to it or something that's in some sort of response to what's been before. So I keep that in mind and I keep myself humble. I keep myself as someone who, I mean, I'm just some guy, really. I'm just sitting in a room and there's a whippersnipper outside and I hope it's not coming through in the background, but if it is, then, well, there's nothing I can do about it because this is my living situations at the moment and I make do with what I've got so far. So this is the Ten Commandments by... Dosta. Number one. Bask in ecstasy. Ecstasy is a glorious phenomenon of the human condition. It's pleasure, it's aliveness, it's electricity, it's an extraordinary sensation throughout the body, and it's so many things, and it's available 
It's something you can learn. It's something you can attain. It's something you can remind yourself of. And I believe so many people would be grateful for the life they have if they knew how to bask in ecstasy. Now, this is very much something that I do owe to Osho because many of the methods that he taught have led me to my experiences of ecstasy. Now, only in part, of course, there were also many things that I found on my own and there were also many things that I found from other people. But I owe a lot to Osho and he does have a series titled Ecstasy. The Forgotten Language. And in that, he talks about the ancient poet Kabir. And Kabir was a mystic who was very much in touch with ecstasy, the ecstasy of life, the ecstasy of what it means to be alive, the ecstasy of what it means to be a human. And it's a rare thing. And I mean, Osho puts it as a Language, He says it's the forgotten language. And that's just a sort of metaphorical way of conveying his understanding or his experience of ecstasy to others. And he also uses the words of Kabir to help with that. So that's number one, bask in ecstasy. And to say a little bit more, I could... I mean, I don't want to say that it's a solution to everything, because it's not. But in a sense, it would solve a lot, right? If you could just have ecstasy, you wouldn't have to go out and do so much to be satisfying yourself or to relieve a craving and all the rest of it. So much of what you want is because you want to be happy, And ecstasy, well, we can say, for the purposes of this conversation, is the highest happiness. I mean, happiness is sort of not strong enough. It's not not as intense as ecstasy in my books. So that's why I've said, number one, bask in ecstasy. Number two... Live your deepest astonishment and awe. Whatever makes you astonished, whatever brings you to awe, live in that. And this is an idea which is similar to a idea that I heard about in the book Way of the Superior Man by David Dada. And his insight is always hold to your deepest truth, which is a clever way of putting it, right? That ties in with a lot of what we've been saying so far. But here I'm just trying to sort of take that as an idea and turn it towards an experience which is positive. And I think astonishment and awe are experiences that are lacking in a lot of people. 
And of course, I wish I had more of it. And of course, I'm, I'm very much grateful for the very large amounts of these things which have been gifted upon me. So that's number two. Live your deepest astonishment and awe. Number three, feel your connection with other people. And I thought about this because I was reading over all these commandments and I realized that so many of them are trying to deal with how one person relates to another person. How do you relate to other people? How do you sum up the entire gargantuan complexity of all the differences that can occur when two people interact? And I thought about this and I thought, well, it comes back to feeling. If we could know how we feel as we connect with someone or relate with someone, then that awareness would dictate how we should relate to them, how we should behave with them. Take, for example, if you have a negative connection with someone or you hate someone, right? Feel your connection with someone else. If you hate someone and you really felt that hate and you were aware of that, well, then you could use that to say, well, either I need to change how I'm relating to this person or I need to get away from this person because I don't want to feel hate. It's not a very positive feeling. It's not a very good feeling. And if you're really having the feeling, if you're really being aware of it, then you would make steps to change it. If, if you could realize, if you could just realize that your negative feelings are things you don't want, then you would realize that you need to change what's causing them. And the same goes for positive experiences. When you relate to someone or you talk to someone in a certain way or you do something with someone in a certain way and that leads to a positive feeling then that would be your way of learning how to relate to them better. That would be your process by actually strengthening the condition between you. So that's number three. Feel your connection with other people. It's very much a therapeutic kind of idea, which is that you have to be aware of your role in your, your sensation, the sensations within you when you are relating to someone. So it's a real-time thing. It's when you're actually in the same room as someone that you want to do that. And there are methods that are specific for that as well. There are certain actual techniques and meditative practices that can go into that. Probably probably just by itself, it's not enough. You need an explanation to go with that. Number four, allow freedom to dictate behavior. If you're ever not, sh if you're ever not sure 
about what to do, ask yourself this, does this lead to more freedom? Does this lead to more options? Does this lead to my ability to be my own thing, to be my own person? Or any other other number of questions that are like that. It's really all the same question. It's really all, does this lead to freedom or does it... Or, or even better than does it lead to freedom? Like, does it, like, like I don't want it to get caught up into, like, like, you could misunderstand that by saying, well, I'm doing something I don't want to do because it will lead to more options later on. That's where it gets complicated, right? Another way, or a more, a more immediate way to say it would be, is this in accordance with my freedom? Is this action in accordance with my freedom? And if it's something you don't want to do, then you would say no. So you wouldn't do it. And of course, there would be consequences for that. You'd have to work that in with what would unfold if you didn't do what was in front of you or what you seemingly had to do. And yet, at least you would be working towards freedom. At least you would be stepping towards a higher value. It's almost like that thing which is speak the truth even if it's uncomfortable because when you... Damn, that whippersnipper is really... It's really loud, isn't it? He's right outside my window. Sorry about that. I guess there's nothing I can do. I guess, well, it's the day for the whippersnipper man. He just turns up, doesn't he? I really don't have any say in the matter. So, what was I saying? The, yeah, so freedom and, okay, so we're making the comparison between truth and freedom. So, it's like that thing where you say, speak the truth, even if it's uncomfortable, because the untruth in the long run will be even more uncomfortable. That's just the same as do whatever makes you feel free, even if it makes you feel uncomfortable, because not being free is even more uncomfortable. It's the same thing, really. It's the same idea. It's just applied to truth and freedom which, funnily enough, have their own relation that we can talk about. But that's a bit philosophical. That's a bit mystical. I don't want to go too far up into that. And, of course, you know, living up to these is is one thing. It's one thing to say these things. It's another to live up to them. So now's probably a good time to acknowledge that. Number five, know God but never say you do. And I think this is an easy way to resolve all of the problems that we have around God. Just allow people to believe in God. Just let them have whatever they want. Just like 
They spend their private time however they want. They spend their act of sexual intimacy however they want. Well, why can't we make God like that? Make it private. Keep it to yourself. Therefore, we don't have evangelism. We don't have conflicting beliefs. We don't have conflicting problems so much. And I would say that it is very much important to have an understanding of God in the same way that, in, in the meaning that God is life. Life is God. God is majesty. God is profound. God is infinity. God is the universe and so on. And that's what I mean by God. So know God, but never say you do. Number six, be creative. There's not really much more that needs to be explained by that. Create things, make things. Of course, there is a world of difference between making something and it being good and making something at all. But there's, there's two differences to understand there. There's the difference between, well, well really, we can, make it, we can make it four differences. There's destruction, which is counterproductive, and it's always going to be counterproductive. Then there's not making anything, which is, well, you haven't got anything. And then there's making something, which is very, that's a big difference between not making something and making something. That's, a, that's, probably, that's probably the biggest difference within the scale. But then there's also making something and making something good. And maybe it's, this is another spectrum. This is another gradual gradation, which goes from one end to another. And maybe it goes full circle as well, because you can say that there's something creative in being destructive in certain situations, you're creating space, you're creating a fresh start, you're removing something that is no longer necessary or needed or applicable or whatever reason it is that you're removing it. So that's something to understand and creativity is, I think, important. And I mean, personality, from a personality point of view, there are certain people who are creative and some people who aren't. It really depends on what you mean by creative, where you want to draw that line, where you want to put that as a definition. I mean, you could say, you know, art or writing or music, that's the creative arts. But you can then draw it further and say, well, just coming up with what to say next can be creative. Just a conversation with a friend can be creative. Just how you cook your next meal can be creative. How you wash yourself or clean the house or whatever can be creative. What you think about next can be creative. So, yeah, there's a lot in creativity. And I don't think it's any surprise that I would make comment on that here. Number seven... See beyond the times you live in. 
And this I mean for the future and for the past. And the reason I put this in is because I was looking at all these commandments and I could see how they were set in a time and place. It was the current affairs of the time, the current beliefs of the time that dictated what those commandments were. And I thought, well, how would you, how would you do that? How could you, how'd you, how could you sidestep that? What's the meta principle that you would apply that would allow you to see and experience something more than just the times you live in? And I guess see beyond the times you live in is sort of like one of those ones which is like tell the truth or be truthful. It's like, okay, well, that's good advice. That's timeless advice. And yes, that does apply to everything. But how do you actually do that? What's the method by which you go about doing that? So it's not a method. It's a commandment. And if we were to try and step a little bit towards that, we'd say, well, study the past. Study history. Study other cultures. Study other epochs. Study other times. And imagine the future. See what's coming in the future. Read books by futurists. Futurism is actually a thing. It's always been a thing could say it's more a thing now than in the past, but I, I wouldn't say that so quickly because there's always been people who would comment on the future. And you could say, well, how can you know the future? You don't know. Yes, but there is a utility in having the future muscle within you working optimally. And that's a deep rabbit hole. I mean... Time travel, I've, talked, I've spoken about time travel in the past and I'm actually even putting together different methods that I've got for time travel and for actually stepping into this space of seeing beyond the times you live in. So that's something that I'm working on. That's something that I'll hope to bring to you in the future sometime. And that will be extensive. That will be comprehensive and there will be multiple, probably a dozen or more techniques that can help with that. So that's number seven. See beyond the times you live in. Number eight, make a habit of being around nature. And this is just getting in touch with the biosphere. This comes back to the Indian Ten Commandments in a way, but it's much more specific, it's much more personal, which is quite simply be around trees, touch the leaves on a tree, smell the wind, listen to the birds, swim in a river, go on a bushwalk, climb a mountain. Go to the beach, sit by the ocean. These sorts of things. Just be around nature every now and then. Make a habit of it. Just every now and then. It could be once a week, once a fortnight, once a month. 
And just remember that it's important to remember where you came from. It's important to be in touch with subtleties. I mean, so much in our modern life is caught up in metal and steel and screens and technology and devices and sounds and machines and all the rest of it. And really, we haven't evolved to be adapted to those things. This modern life, this concrete, these machines, this technology, it's so recent in our evolutionary development that we don't know how to deal with it. We don't know how to adjust with it. And it can be the cause of so much neuroses, so much pathology, so much degradation of the senses. So that's why it's important to make a habit, make a habit of being around nature. Number nine, befriend your dark side. And I sort of feel that this is a little bit incomplete because... I'm trying to get at this thing that everyone has a darker nature. Everyone has something in them that is destructive. And it's either self-destructive or it's destructive to the people around them or to the culture and the society around them. But you have to admit that everyone has a dark side. Everyone has a shadow. Everyone has something in them that is me, me, me. I just... I just, I'm just in it for me. I could call it ego. I don't really like to use the word ego so much. But that's one way of putting it. And I think if you befriend your dark side, then you're not suppressing it. And this is another idea that Osho brought to my attention. It's really in his teachings that this idea has come about for me. Because with all these rules... The idea is that, okay, so there's, there's something bad that you might do. So what you have to do is walk around and really restrict yourself to make sure you definitely don't do it. So don't commit adultery. Don't kill anyone. Don't steal. Don't feel jealous. And it's like this restrictive thing. But that can actually lead to repression. It can lead to a kind of bursting out because you walk around with all these restraints until you become tired of holding restraints and then it all comes undone and then it comes out in this ecstatic behavior or erratic behavior and that's when something goes wrong. Now, to befriend your dark side is very different. To befriend your dark side is to say, okay, now I have these impulses I have these dark thoughts and I could actually act them out. I'm perfectly capable of doing it. And I'm not going to deny that these things are within me. I'm not going to deny that there is a part of me that would enjoy doing these things. And yet, I'm not going to do them. 
I'm going to understand that by accepting this dark side of me, I don't have to repress it. I don't have to clamp it down. And this is something that comes up for me personally in my addictions. You know, I mean, I've had certain addictions which I really beat myself up over. I really feel guilty about something I've struggled with for years. And granted, the manifestations of those addictions aren't anywhere near what we're... They're they're not biblical in their... Like, I'm not going to kill someone. I'm not going to... I'm not going to rape someone. I'm not going to do anything like that, which is what these biblical laws were trying to stop. The things I'm talking about is like, you know, drinking coffee or smoking cigarettes or eating junk food, these sorts of things, which are, largely speaking, they're only destructive to me. They're only my problem. And, of course, you could say, well, there's a problem on the health system for that or there's a gradual, eventual repercussion on society for those small things which there are but largely speaking i mean compared to murdering someone it's almost nothing right so this is a big thing because it's like there's, there's so many commandments that are trying to get at this and there's no one size fits all and the fact of the matter is that Humans are evil. We are evil. And just just look at us. Look at the things we've done. Is it any wonder people are coming up with Ten Commandments and they're saying, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Is it any wonder when you look at the way humans treat each other? Is it any wonder that we need rules. And to be honest, I have no idea how to break good from bad, evil from divine. I have no idea how to create a moral compass that fits all, that can work for all, that can be applicable to all situations. So the best that I have come up with is befriend your dark side. So know that there is a dark side within you. And by being friends with it means that you don't have to let it manifest in such destructive ways. So, number 10. Number 10, I had I had two ideas for this. So I'll give you both. One was celebrate each person's uniqueness. And I told a friend about this over dinner and he sort of thought, ah, nah, that's a bit cheesy. So that's not the official one. But I do, I do like that. I mean, I mean, there's problems with it because you can say, is each person really unique? And I would say each person has a unique essence to them, but that only comes to the forefront of their being with awareness and with practice. So yes, everyone is unique, but not everyone has earned the right to have their uniqueness 
as their main thing, as the essence of what they are, as the thing that is at the forefront of who they are. And really, it's quite sad that so many people don't get to develop their uniqueness and they are just a generic thing. They're turned into a generic thing by their society, by their culture, by their technology, by the information they consume, by the people around them. Just because, for so many reasons, well, <laughs> that's the question of why is, why is society against the individual? That's a big question. It's probably too much for us to chew on. But at least I can dream of a world. And I mean, this also comes back to do not condemn someone on the base of their ethnicity or their color or their creed. It's like you can say do not condemn someone or you can say celebrate someone. It's really, it's really the same thing, but it, it's on a different point along the same spectrum. So celebrate each person's uniqueness was one that I was thinking about. But number 10, I put quite simply, never stop learning from yourself, from the world and from others. So never stop learning. I mean, Dawkins had his one, which was always seek to be learning something new. But for me, I think that's a good one to reiterate here. And to be learning from yourself and from the world and from others is what I would add, particularly from others, because you can say there's this thing of listening to someone speak and being aware that they might contradict your beliefs and you need to be open to them. And that's one way of looking at it. But then there's also this thing of, why don't you learn from someone else? Why don't you take that as an actual expanding of your own experience, of your own perspective? So that's number 10. Never stop learning from yourself, from the world and from others. And that's it. That's my Ten Commandments. I certainly don't expect anyone to... <laughs> well, I'm, I'd be surprised if anyone is even listening to this at all, <laughs> to be honest, at this stage. But at least there are some ideas. At least that's what I feel comfortable with, and that's what I've been able to come up with. And... I hope you can see now that there's a lot in all of these. And it's really still only one skewer. It's really still only one small way of coming into an understanding of what life is and what paradigms are and how they work. But at least it's a good start. At least that gives you an idea of what it means to really go through all the ins and the outs. Now, I'll also mention that Jordan Peterson has his famous book, very famous book, very recent book, called 12 Rules for Life. And I haven't included those here, because, partly because I think maybe I'll talk about them at a future date. And also, they didn't quite fit. I mean, there's something different about what he's going on there. So 
It didn't quite fit in with what we were talking about today, but still the idea is the same, right? 12 rules, here are the rules and they make you understand life a little bit better. You can live by them. This is what you can work with for your actions, for your behaviors, for your beliefs, for your relationships, for your morality and all the rest of it. And probably, probably, I mean, I don't know. We'll see what happens in the future. I mean, he's a, he's a hot topic, right? It's a massive book, huge selling book. And he's probably the most famous public intellectual at the moment. He's the most talked about commentator on ideas or beliefs or philosophical structures and all the rest of it. However you want to summarize whatever it is that he's on about, all that he's on about. He's the, he's the one that's really up there. So I don't know if I'll go down that path. Who knows? We'll see what happens. Just know that it's, it's an idea that might be coming in the future. So I thought I'd mention that. And of course, there are many other versions of the Ten Commandments through other cultures and other paradigms even. So you can do further research and see, well, how this has stacked up with what we've talked about here. So, Christianity has its Ten Commandments. Beetroot Russell has his atheistic paradigm. Richard Dawkins has his militant new atheism with a little bit of naturalism and appreciation of the biosphere thrown in there as well. The indigenous Americans, the Indians, have their Ten Commandments, which bring us into an understanding of Gaia and what it means to be in harmony with nature. Christopher Hitchens has his Ten Commandments as a contrarian, as someone who speaks out against the rules and the dogma that has passed. And Osho has his commandments or insights or things to live by from the mystical and meditative perspective. And there's Dosta, me. And you can make of me what you wish. And... If you have listened this far, please do leave a comment because I'd like to know what you think about what we've been speaking about. So thanks very much for tuning it in. Tuning it in. Thanks for tuning in and for tuning it in. Thank you very much. I hope you have a wonderful day. I hope you're not living too much by rules. Enjoy yourself. Stay beautiful. Stay healthy. Stay on the path. Continue down that good road. Fight the good fight. Very warm feelings. Thank you again so much. And we'll be back very soon with more. And that's all I have to say for now.